Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee, parts three and four. With me, Bex. And me, Mr. Jackpots. <laughs> and welcome to our episode, as you can guess, all about parts three and four of the new season of Twin Peaks. So this is our latest in our line of Cherry Pie and Coffee podcasts from Time for Cakes and Ale. As you might imagine, there's going to be big spoilers ahead for up to and including parts four of Twin Peaks The Return, so be warned. And in addition to lots and lots of spoilers, we're really going to focus, after a broad recap of the episodes with some thoughts on what some of the events might actually mean, um, we're going to be talking a little bit more about our sort of bigger theories about what's going on based solely on what we've seen in episodes one to four. And so that's kind of towards the end of the episode. We'll be talking about how our previous theories have evolved a little bit, how indeed some of them are actually probably completely wrong already. Uh, we're going to talk about how the new information really affects what we're thinking at the moment. And also, I think a really big focus is going to be the relevance of The Secret History of Twin Peaks by Mark Frost and how that might be figuring into the mythology of the new season. And of course, we're going to end with some thoughts on where we think the next few episodes might go potentially what the bigger mysteries are that lie ahead yeah although given that at the end of part two i don't think anyone could have predicted what the first 10 minutes of part three would have had <laughs> uh, our predictions are just going to be completely let's try them anyway yeah let's we'll see what happens and maybe one two percent of them <laughs> might hold an ounce of truth in them i don't know but it'd be really great if you listen to our theories and you find anything we're saying remotely interesting about Twin Peaks. Uh, we'd love for you to get in touch and tell us what you think about some of the things we're saying and the mythology that's building up in the new season of Twin Peaks. Shall we start with those first 10 minutes of part three? We shall. Since we watched the first two episodes last Sunday, it's kind of been the only thing that we've been thinking about all the time. So it's pervaded almost every waking moment. And <laughs> I I have to say also some of, you know, the time when we've been asleep as well in our dreams. Twin Peaks has just been everywhere in our heads at the moment. And it's really exciting to have a show now where there's lots to think about and mull over. And it's so frighteningly original that I'm really looking forward to this summer of uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, I haven't been able to get that music from the end of part two out of my head. I just find myself wandering around humming it. I, I only really know the chorus, but that doesn't seem to matter. It just goes around and around. And I think, uh, especially in light of what we're going to talk about today, I mean, so this is so we're recording this on a Saturday morning, which is a bit unusual, but we're going to be away this weekend, so we're recording it a little bit earlier. This is really turning out to be a series of even just four episodes so far, which really reward multiple watchers. There are so many details that we're picking up every time we're sitting down to see them. I think we've seen one and two many times now. <laughs> uh, parts three and four we've seen... Three, three times. Three I times, think. yeah. Parts one and two, we decided to break down by the geography of what was going on, because there were so many new places, new plot strands, new characters coming in, that it was a way of approaching it that we could make sense of it all. Now that we're kind of used to a lot of these new characters and where these places are, 
I think we're just going to go through these chronologically through the two episodes because there are some new characters and some new places but for the most part we're kind of dealing with things that are starting to be established. And I think when we get to the end of the episode where we're talking about our theories that's when we'll completely break with that and be talking about different events, different locations, timelines, all kind of things which have been happening across all four episodes. So we begin with Cooper falling through this static space, I guess, uh, which we kind of left him falling through in episode two. And he lands on some kind of industrial balcony on the outside of this purple cube-like building. And there's just endless ocean on the outside uh, that he just kind of looks balefully out at. He goes inside and there's this kind of purple cube room. There's a fireplace. There's a woman with no eyes dressed in red who reacts to his presence. And the way that time moves within this space, it jumps forward a little, back a little, forward back, forward back, skips, goes back. Everything seems fractured from a a kind of linear perspective within this place. Yeah, it's... It almost looked a little bit like stop motion with live action people. So it's all very jerky and a bit weird. It's very disorientating to watch. The appearance of this Asian woman is very bizarre. So it looks like she has smoothed over areas where her eyes are, almost like there's scar tissue over them. Mm. It's kind of odd. It's not like she has no eyes. It's almost like it could even be like a a specific deformity she's induced upon herself almost in order to stop herself from seeing things but it's clear that the minute that cooper shows up she is fully aware that it's him uh, after a brief little bit of lionel richie hello videoness <laughs> where she's kind of feeling his face and trying to work out what's going on and she's talking i don't think it sounded like the backwards speech that you hear in the red room it sounded it sounded very weird and i couldn't make anything out and clearly Cooper couldn't understand what she was saying. I think he comes in and he asks, you know, where are we? And she's trying to respond. And I'm not sure if he understands. He just looks very confused. But she's very on edge, very nervous the whole time. Yeah. And there's this banging coming from a door. And she keeps trying to signal to him to be quiet. Um, that there's, there's someone, something on the other side of the door trying to get in. And it's then that he notices this panel on the wall. It looks like a a kind of electrical circuit um, on the wall with a number 15 15 written on it. And he gets up, he goes towards it. There's some kind of electrical field that kind of makes him jump back a little bit. And then she rushes over to him and starts making the kind of that that kind of uh, death hand signal where you you kind of swipe your hand over your throat to, to say no don't so the implication is is that something to do with this panel numbered 15 is dangerous and she's trying to stop cooper from going near it uh and when he kind of backs away as well she goes towards another door and she leads cooper out of this room which is in this weird purple haze i just realized purple haze (laughs) (laughs) and uh they go through this door, they go up uh, some stairs initially, and then they emerge through a ladder onto the outside of this bizarre space submarine cube in the sea, whatever it is. <laughs> and they're standing on top of this large 
sort of metal base with a big metal thimble looking thing. It's very hard to describe. Yeah. And they're floating in space. We all live in a purple cube space submarine. <laughs> a purple cube space submarine. You know the drill. That'll never catch on. No. It's not quite as quite as catchy, is it? So yeah, they're now just floating in space. And Cooper is still completely confused. He doesn't understand what's going on. Certainly, I didn't understand what was going on, but that that probably isn't as relevant. And she kind of manoeuvres to the side of this large thimble-like metallic construction, and there's a huge lever there, which... Well, what's weird is that when they're out of the room, it's not juddery anymore, is it? Yeah. Everything is calmed again. You're seeing a very smooth version of what's happening. But there's this kind of bright light emanating from their faces, or just they just kind of seem to be glowing in a way when they're out standing on the top of this thing. And she goes over to this giant metal lever on the side of it, and she grabs hold of it. She gives him this kind of strange look, and pauses. And then she pulls the lever down, and it seems to electrocute her, and she flies off the cube and yeah. into space. It's almost like one of those moments in a sci-fi film you know when the artificial gravity is turned off and she kind of floats off into space and she leaves cooper alone standing on top of this we keep going back this this weird cube space submarine (laughs) and he's looking around and then very strangely he's looking out into space and we see the giant head of major garland briggs float past the screen very slowly and he mouths the words blue rose. Mm. So this is a really cool moment because all of a sudden we have this first tie-in to uh, the blue rose idea that comes from Fire Walk With Me. So there, for those of you who don't know, Gordon Cole has these special blue rose cases which seemingly have some kind of supernatural or bizarre element to them. And... Obviously, to the viewer, this is going to be a strange case. But this is almost a moment where it's being related to Cooper in this environment that this could be a Blue Rose uh, case that he's in or a series of related Blue Rose events. Yeah, and it was also a really nice way to get Major Briggs into the show somehow because obviously uh, Don S. Davis died quite a few years ago now. So we had just assumed that his presence just wasn't going to be in the show at all and that maybe he would just get referred to by other characters um but clearly they were able to you know cgi an image from him from all of the footage that they had so you get the uh giant head just floating on by as you do yeah and these bits are really reminiscent of a razor head i mean not just the head floating by which is sort of straight out of that uh with kind of the scene of henry in in the film um but also i that bit where uh, the blind woman pulls down on that lever, it really reminded me of the the character who's, let me, um, what was his name? The man in the moon mm. in a razor head as well. There's lots of lever pulling in the next couple of episodes as well. I don't know <laughs> what it means, but um, obviously later on there are scenes in a casino where Cooper is trying out these one-armed bandit machines. And there's something to do with these levers, which I think is important. And I wonder if this is sort of foreshadowing that by her giving him the instruction to pull on these levers in some way. I don't know, but we'll come to that later. Yeah. So he climbs back down inside and the interior of the giant space cube submarine has changed. Um, It's not purple anymore. Time has gone back to some kind of normal linear fashion. 
and there's another woman sitting in there um, who's wearing a red cardigan and it looks like Renette Pulowski. Yeah. But 25 years older. Yeah. But then she's not credited as Renette Pulowski in the credits. No, she's credited as American Girl. And I don't know whether that's just because maybe he is seeing a representation of something and it's represented to him as Ronette Pulaski because he does seem to recognise her. Um, But he obviously never mentions her name. It's unclear exactly how this fits into things. Um, She's not wearing a red dress like the blind woman. She's kind of wearing a, a red cardigan instead. And she's sitting in front of this fireplace. And I think just as it's zooming in to see her, uh, where, I think from behind where she's sitting, you see a blue rose on the on the table mm. uh, next to her. A single blue rose in a vase. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which we only saw, I think, on our third rewatch or something. <laughs> um, I don't really know why Ronette Pulaski would be there. Because I didn't really... Well... Unless something has happened in the intervening 25 years that meant she's now part of the the Lodge mythology as well. I don't know if this is just almost like a, a vision that Cooper is having or a dream and he's seeing representations of things that are going to guide him in some way, but they're not actually to do with spirits who are in the Lodge necessarily. Yeah, to be honest, it could have just been David Lynch saying, where can I get the actress who played Renette Pulaski into this? Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is where she'll be. I wonder if this is one of those moments where what was originally a nine-hour series became an 18-hour series. <laughs> but yeah, critically then what happens is we get the first, not an answer, but the first um, representation of one of the things that's been said by the evolution of the arm mm. at the end of episode two, I mm. think. So uh, in that episode, or part, um, the arm says 253. And we had no idea what that was before, but what happens here is that it seems to represent a time, uh, 2.53 on an analogue watch. And when it reaches that time, a lamp comes on and we then kind of cut to the evil Doppelkoop guy who's driving around, we assume still in South Dakota, probably on his way to find Ray at the end of the previous part. Mm. And he's... uh, driving his car but he looks really really ill the clock on his dashboard says it's just about to turn 253 as well so we know that maybe this 253 represents a time we don't know if it's going to turn up again um, it does make us wonder whether the 430 which the character we think might be the giant at the very beginning of part one uh, he said 430 yeah we're kind of wondering whether that means that's another relevant time that's going to be appearing later on but whilst we see these scenes of the bad coop uh, driving, but clearly very ill, it then cuts back to this room where the person who's not Ronette Pulaski is sitting and speaking backwards. She says, when you get there, you will already be there. Hmm. At this point, there's a, clearly a sense that this is something to do with this event where bad Cooper is going to get sucked back into the Black Lodge. And that will be used almost as an exchange to allow the good Cooper to be released back into the real world, which has mm. been spoken about in the previous two parts. Yeah, and then you get the banging at the door again um, that was there before. It's the same door, and she says, you'd better hurry, my mother's coming, um, gesturing to whatever it is that's trying to get in through the door. And the electrical circuit diagram on the wall, it looks the same, but it now has the number three written in the top instead of 15. 
and when he moves towards it he starts kind of sparking and almost turning into smoke himself and eventually he just starts to phase into this kind of smoky entity and disappears into the panel all of him except his shoes that get left behind i don't know why his shoes get but left that does behind. happen later on as well yeah for some reason these characters are turned into a form that can be transmitted through any kind of electrical system so they enter and emerge from electrical sockets but the shoes never go through which is odd um, i wonder if it's because something to do with the fact they have rubber soles and they insulate or something i don't know there'll be some reason for it i'm sure or maybe just a little quirk that makes it visually quite interesting i don't know yeah and then we see bad cooper become so ill and disoriented that as he's driving he, he keeps looking at the cigarette lighter and it's like there are sparks coming from the cigarette lighter in the dashboard and he's getting sicker and sicker and woozier and woozier and eventually his car veers off the road and flips over up the bank and then back down again and he just kind of lands with a thud. And what we get from this I suppose is that there are two panels, three and fifteen. Three is the one that Cooper goes through, fifteen is the one that the blind woman stopped him from going through implying that it was dangerous for him to go and if you remember the original Twin Peaks series 315 together as is also brought up later in this episode was Cooper's room number at the Great Northern. So then we switch to this completely new character called Dougie who looks exactly like good Coop and bad Coop except that he has really bad hair. And he's uh, much bigger as well. Yeah <laughs> and uh, he's in this house with a prostitute named Jade. Two crucial things one is that his left arm has gone numb and the second is that he is wearing the ring the jade ring with the owl cave symbol on it uh, which cropped up in if i walk with me and features very heavily in the secret history of twin peaks as well so while jade is out of the room he starts to feel really sick he staggers through the house he vomits up something really nasty and collapses on the floor and at the same time bad coop in his car is trying not to throw up. He's yeah. kind of got his hands clasped over his face. And as Bad Cooper's in the guy, he starts to see the curtains of the red room phase in and out around him. But then Dougie also starts to see that. And suddenly Dougie finds himself sitting in a chair in the red room. And Bad Coop, the last glimpse he has of the red room curtains, he sees an armchair with Dougie sitting in it. And then it all fades away. And he then just throws up what looks like the most disgusting thing anyone's ever thrown up in the history of time. But that stuff, if you've watched Firewalk with me and a couple of a couple of episodes of uh, Twin Peaks seasons one and two, is the creamed corn-like substance, which is Garmin Bosia. Mm. So this is what the lodge spirits seem to need to consume. It's the pain and suffering of their victims which seems to be their form of sustenance in some way so presumably the evil cooper has stored up all of this garmin bozier inside of him but as he's about to be sucked back into the lodge what's happened is uh it's kind of been expelled from him in some way but i don't know if actually that's what's happened exactly or maybe because he hasn't been taken into the black lodge and the other one has there's some price he has to pay for remaining in the real world and that is the expulsion of uh the garmin bosier that was keeping him going and keeping him strong probably in the real world 
Yeah, and we don't know why Dougie threw stuff up as well. Yeah, but that didn't look like the Garmin Bosier. It was, it's a nasty conversation. It's, <laughs> it was kind of a more solid mass of something. It didn't seem like all splattery and yellow and cream corny. I don't know. I mean, maybe it was, but it seemed like a different consistency and it seemed like something different. Yeah. Did, did it remind you of Santa Clarita Diet? Yes, it did. It did. You know, when, when she throws up all this nasty yellow stuff and then she throws up a red ball and, the, and you, they can never figure out why, why all the people who have got this kind of zombie virus, they throw up a little red ball along with all the rest of the stuff. But it's just, just hilarious comedy vomit everywhere. Anyway, <laughs> enough, enough vomit. So then uh, Jade is in the shower and she hears this thunderclap of Dougie disappearing and Cooper emerges out of the wall socket into the room. Yes, he went in to panel three in that second room in the first part of the episode and now he's emerged initially as kind of black smoke. Yeah, and it it made me wonder if maybe panel 15 would have taken him through the cigarette lighter to where Bad Coop was and panel three has taken him through the wall socket to where Dougie was. Yeah. And is that why it would have been dangerous for him to go where Bad Coop was? Because Bad Coop would have killed him. Yeah, seen. probably. So he would have come out and exchanged places with Bad Coop, but he would have died instantly anyway in the car accident. Could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So poor Dougie is now in the red room and Mike looks completely perplexed to see him there. And then you get this really freaky visual of... Dougie, he starts to physically shrink into his jacket. Uh, the ring falls off his finger. And then he bursts into this sort of black flame where his head was. This gold ball rises up. That turns into some kind of weird skull head thing. And then Mike covers his eyes so that he doesn't watch when something happens. And whatever it was, you end up with this tiny little gold ball at the end of it. Which Mike goes and retrieves along with the ring. And yeah, that was just bizarre i can't remember we said this earlier but obviously the bit where his arm is tingly or whatever that's clearly a callback to what happened to Teresa banks mm. uh, who was the first or the previous victim of bob um in fire walk with me so she i think uh, when they go to the diner so when chet desmond and sam stanley go to the diner to uh, find out what's going on and find out a little bit more about Teresa they find out that she used to work there and just before she died she experienced a strange numbness in her arm as well so this must be all tied together i i even wonder if it's linked to those bits at the end of season two of twin peaks when you know those characters would have their hands kind of shaking a little bit yeah i can't remember if that was always their left hand as well i can't remember but it happened somehow and they always look very confused so there's clearly some connection between the influence of the lodgers on the real world and arm numbing and uh, tingling etc yeah and if it is the left hand and the left arm that's interesting because that's also the arm that Mike cut off yeah with his left arm yeah and Mike tells Dougie this strange thing just before he shrinks and turns into a golden ball bearing Uh, he says you were created for a purpose but now I think that purpose has been fulfilled so the, the implication is that there's another double that has been made could presumably by bad coop or bob or whoever 
to take his place in the inevitable exchange that he knows is going to happen. So are there other created people out there um, thinking about people who have sort of behaved strangely? You've got that guy who, what's his name, Badcoop kills him when they're hiding the car and he squishes his Jack. face. Jack. Jack, yeah. It's clear that if you look at the prospect of there being fake people around or clones in some way who aren't necessarily... Um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it because I don't know if there's been enough explained about it. But you can imagine there are some people in this universe who are not real, who are created, and I think this ties to maybe uh, Cooper squishing his face. Maybe he's not real. Maybe that's how you kind of tell that there's nothing inside them. Um, and also, it's a callback to when Cooper, bad Cooper, meets uh, Phyllis Hastings mm. and says something like. Uh, you follow human nature perfectly. Yeah. Which maybe implies that she's another person who has been created and placed in the current timeline as a decoy or some kind of agent for his own nefarious purposes. Yeah, so now we have Good Coop apparently out in the real world, but he's just completely stunned. He doesn't really understand anything that's going on. He's still behaving in a similar way to he behaved when he was in the Black Lodge, which was a lot of standing around just observing things and not really interacting with people. So Jade finds him on the floor and thinks that he's sick. She also thinks he's been wearing a wig the whole time, which is why his hair's changed, and she's like, oh, where did you get that black suit from? Um, but otherwise, logically, from her perspective, it must be Dougie, because he still pretty much looked like Dougie, and that's exactly where she left him. So she says, we've got to get out of this house. And they're on this estate, which it looks like it's some kind of residential development that hasn't sold. There are for sale signs outside pretty much every house on the street. And they're both parked up outside. But Cooper, he can't put his own shoes on. He can't go out of the house without somebody ushering him out. Cooper has been returned to the real world, but he's been reborn in a very childlike state. So you find that a lot of the things he's saying are mimicking what people are saying back to him. He's observing what people are doing and trying to understand and then repeat those actions in the hope that that's what he's meant to do. So he's clearly recovering almost from the transfer from the Black Lodge into potentially the real world. We'll come to that in a second. (laughs) Um, But there's clearly something missing about him he's clearly not the fully functional coop that we remember um and when he talks it just reminded me of leo when he starts you know doing his little new shoes routine all the time these very simple phrases he comes up with yeah and when we leave the house we see his car in the driveway but he hasn't got his keys because it's not dougie and the license plate is dougie love and interesting it's a nevada plate so i think that most of what happens after this in that storyline must be Las Vegas. Yeah, and that might actually tie in to what happened in part two, I think it was, with that scene in Las Vegas where Mr. Todd is speaking to Roger and talking about some guy who's controlling him and there's that moment when he, when Mr. Todd hands over some money to Roger and said, tell her she has the job. Yeah. So I wonder if that's kind of tied in, even at this early stage. But could he have been talking about Jade? Yeah, potentially. So maybe he has paid Jade to get involved 
with Dougie for some long-term plan, but he could actually be being manipulated even by Bad Cooper. So you could imagine mm-hmm. that Bad Cooper has said, you make this happen, and maybe Mr. Todd is his guy in Las Vegas who's fixing everything for him. Yeah, so they have to leave in Jade's car because the only keys Coop has is the Great Northern Room key of 315, yeah. uh, which is very important, uh, and ends up saving his life. As they're driving through, the name of this housing development is Rancho Rosa, which I assume is just an in-joke with the name of the production company. Or is it a double R thing? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a good point. It could be double R. Um, yeah, like Red Room, the double R diner. It could be. It seems a bit weird. It seems a bit too meta for a a David Lynch thing. Um, but I suppose the implication of that is potentially something to do with this being not real. But I don't know if that's... Is that too on the nose to have it being um, representative of what we're seeing not necessarily being a real series of events? Well, I, I do question how much of what happens after this is real. But I think we should come to that in our discussion at the wider end. theories. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I want to return to later on is the fact that as they're driving away, there are two guys who have obviously been sent there to kill Dougie Coop. They go to the house, but he's already left with Jade. One of them puts a bomb under his car. I think it's a bomb, or is it a tracker? I, I don't know. I mean, it, they're waiting for him, so they've been following him for some time. And of course, later on, we find out he's been gone for three days. So they must be following him around. I don't know. Would you put a... It's it's almost like when uh, Bad Coop said, I'm going to wire the... Well, he wanted Jack to wire the car. Yeah. Uh, that belonged to Hastings Secretary in uh, part one and two. It was unclear if wire meant make the thing blow up or put a bug in it. Yeah. So this could just be a tracker to keep finding him to see where he goes. Yeah, but then the other guy who is stationed in a car at the exit of the development is going to try and shoot him as Jade is leaving if he's in the car. They're not really sure if he is or not. So he gets Freddy with a, a rifle to uh, to take him out. But Good Coop has um, taken his Great Northern Room key out of his pocket and dropped it. And he conveniently uh, bends down to pick it up off the floor just as the car is going past. So the hitman thinks he's not in the car. He must be in the house. Yeah, so I have two theories about who those guys might be and why they're there, but I'll come back to them later. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So when they're driving, I think the one thing that's heavily signposted is the fact they're driving down Sycamore Street. Yeah. Uh, Now, this has lots of relevance in the Twin Peaks universe. Um, Obviously, the circle of sycamore trees is where the entrance to the Black Lodges. Um, it's obviously the cool song that was sung by Jimmy Scott in the final episode. Uh, potentially the evolution of the arm is turning into a sycamore tree when he's emerged. He looks like the same kind of tree, yeah. but I don't know enough about trees to know if he's <laughs> actually just a tree or if he's a sycamore tree in particular. Again, it's a very strange callback to the mythology of what good coop is aware of from previous events Mm. so i think even the bit where he ducks his head there's an implication not just here but in the following hour or so that there are forces at work potentially which are 
controlling his actions in such a way that they are pushing him in the right direction and potentially keeping him safe as well. Mm. And the other thing we see uh, when these two men are looking for who they think is probably Dougie is it cuts very strangely to the house across the road and you see this woman and her son. And so what are the key things that happen there? The woman looks like a drug addict or she's alcoholic or something. The notable things there particular there's a red balloon in the background yeah which we'll come to a little bit later but that could be linked to the to a birthday party which is referenced later there are playing cards on the table and obviously as we spoke about in uh, our previous episode the the gaming and playing card imagery is becoming very prominent already but also what's weird is that the woman is shouting one one nine one one nine over and over again kind of wailing it but to no one in particular Mm. i think her son doesn't seem to be responding and i don't know this is one of those scenes that lynch puts into his film sometimes which is just there's weird stuff going on all over the place this could be one of those moments where you're meant to ignore this you know keep your eye on the donut not on the hole (laughs) it could be a moment of distraction so the episode is called call for help that becomes apparent later as well you would call the police, 911, obviously not here in the UK, but um, 911 backwards is 119. And potentially maybe this woman is almost speaking backwards, but not actually using uh, backwards language, but just saying the numbers backwards in some way. Yeah, and her son is just sitting in a chair eating a box of saltines, I think. Yeah, but the, the one thing that it reminds me of, um, and again, this could be a stretch as well, is... It does remind me of, you know, when Donna is doing the Meals on Wheels yeah, and she meets the Tremonts yeah. for the first time, who are later the Chalfonts in Fire Walk With Me. Again, there's a weird situation. The strange uh, intergenerational um, family setup you have. So there it was grandmother and grandson. Here it's mother and son. But there's something weird. I don't know if they're lodge spirits as well, somehow monitoring something, whether they're actually in the house. Or if they're something which is seeing what's going on. Maybe they were stationed across the road from Dougie because they knew that the switch was going to happen or something. But they did remind me a bit of the Tremonts. Mm. Um, but again, maybe it's clutching at straws. Maybe it's nothing to do with that at all. Yeah, so could there also be a connection to this character who appears to be the mother of the, the boy who's there with the reference that not Renette Pulowski was making to... You better hurry, my mother's coming. Ah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Or it could just be another complete coincidence. Well, it could be foreshadowing something like saying, you need to get away because the mother is watching. Mm. So maybe the people across the road, that mother and son, are aware that the good Cooper has emerged there and maybe he shouldn't have done. Mm. Um, So maybe that's what's going on. Because it's unclear, even in the other scenes, whether the mother, who is banging on the door, is actually threatening. Yeah. She could be trying to get in to help Cooper. You don't know. I mean, you assume that because it's aggressive knocking that there's a threat. And certainly the blind woman implies that there's danger. But you don't know if it's somebody trying to make contact with him, almost to break him out of this dream that he's having. Yeah. And then we go back to Bad Coop, who is still in the crashed car, um, looking pretty comatose. And some patrolmen come along, pull over, and go to see if whoever's in the car is okay. And the one who goes up to the window then almost faints because they've become overwhelmed by some kind of toxic fumes. And it's clear that whatever this Garmabosia stuff is, that 
bad Cooper's thrown up is just making everybody sick who comes into contact it's with it. Pure concentrated pain and suffering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so they, they they advise that the uh, paramedics bring gas masks when they come to pick him up, and that's the last we see of Bad Coop for a while. Yeah. So Jade takes. Dougie Coop to the Silver Mustang Casino. I'm not sure why there of all places she chooses to take him. Unless that's where she picked him up in the first place. It could be. It could be where they met yeah. originally. Um, she takes him there. She tells him that she thinks he might have had a stroke or something because of the way he's acting. Gives him $5, tells him to call for help and then tries to get him out of the car. And she says something like, uh, you can go out now. And he has this sudden flash of memory i think it is to laura in the red room telling him you can go out now i think it's kind of weird it's, at first i thought it was a bit clumsy because it seems like they're deliberately doing almost a flashback for the viewer to get them to remember what this phrase is a callback to but then i realized uh, when we rewatched it actually it's probably just coop remembering these events so it might be a good indication that this really is the coop who's out of the lodge who's now in this new world and he's going to have flashes of his experience in the Black Lodge uh, as a means to show that he's coming back to reality in some way. Yeah, so she drives off and that's presumably the last we're going to see of her because she doesn't seem to want to have anything to do with him because of how strangely he's behaving now. But she does give the the message which... Uh, gives the episode its title, which is Call for Help, which then gets repeated again and again. So she gives him the money and says, you know, you need to call for help. And again, this is one of those moments where you see Coop then start to repeat the phrase parrot fashion back again. Again, it does remind me of this, of what uh, Bad Coop said to Phyllis, you know, mimicking human nature and mm. things like that. It's almost like it's expected that when you emerge from the back Black Lodge, you're unable to... Uh, kind of react or deal with things properly until you kind of get yourself back again so maybe that's what's happening here and one extra thing about jade is well firstly her name jade which is green precious stone i don't know what the owl ring is made from is that jade or is that something else it looks like it might be yeah but i'm not sure because i wasn't sure if it was made from the formica table in some way that they talk about in fire walk with me i can't remember but the one thing i do remember about that is when they there was an interview with the guy who plays the jumping man in fire walk with me and he said that the only kind of character references that david lynch gave him when he was playing the jumping man was that this character was a talisman that had come to life ah. and i wonder if that same concept is being used again here and i wonder if jade is actually somehow a talisman a good luck charm almost that has been given to Coop to kind of guide him forward again. I don't know if that's true, but there's something funny about her as well, because she's there almost to serve the purpose of getting him to the next step in his journey as he emerges from the Black Lodge and onto the next series of um, events that take place in the casino afterwards. So Coop goes into the casino, he bumbles his way through the revolving door, which is a great piece of physical comedy, and he shuffles his way in, and initially, all he can really say to people is call for help. And I think the security guard is directing him to the telephones. Yeah. Is he? They're at the back. He needs change. So he goes to the window, gets change and gets given a cup full of quarters. And for some reason, those cups that they give the quarters in visually reminded me of the coffee cups. 
Oh, because they're white and they have like a black logo on them. And... Yeah, and it's not the same logo. It was just the shape of them. Yeah. Um, but it just got me thinking about the, the takeaway coffee cups as well. Mm. It's probably nothing, but there you go. <laughs> We're clutching at straws here. Yeah, but you recognised who the teller was. Yeah, that was uh, Meg Foster, who, uh, to be honest, she's been in loads and loads of cult genre films. But I remember her for being Evil Lynn in the Masters of the Universe movie. <laughs> when she popped up in this, I was like, ah, that's interesting. Um, but again, even her behaviour is very odd. She's very sympathetic towards him. And, and points she literally points him in the direction of where he has to go she gives him the means with the change mm. and she sends him in the right direction so everyone is pushing him in the same direction um and so now he moves into the main casino area yeah and he witnesses other people playing slot machines with quarters and he sees one guy kind of rob a quarter for luck put it in the machine he wins a lot of quarters and he shouts, hello. <laughs> so, of course, Dougie Coop, new Coop, whatever we can call him, uh, imitating the people around him, he decides to do the same. But he starts to see these weird kind of almost cone shaped lights that are of the red room symbols. You see parts of the curtain, parts of the floor. Yeah, like surrounded by flame. Yeah, mm. appearing above certain slot machines. You know what it reminded me of, actually, now I think about it? It reminds me of the image of fire that you see in the map that they find in Owl Cave. Mm. That kind of very stylistic set of flames with a round base. And there was something in the middle of that as well. I don't know if that's something to do with that. Yeah, so th there's some kind of force guiding him to the machines that are going to pay out mega super bonuses. And he just starts winning jackpot after jackpot uh, and every time uh, he shouts hello <laughs> which is what we've been doing a lot of in the last couple of days yeah much to the annoyance of everyone with an earshot <laughs> <laughs> so after a while he's won loads of jackpots and there's this old woman who seems to have some kind of gambling addiction she's um kind of uh, at one point she desperately wants to steal some of the quarters he's left behind but realizes that people are watching through the cameras and at first, she's very antagonistic towards him because she doesn't want him to play the machine next to her. But when she realises that he can spot where the jackpots are going to pay out, uh, she asks him and he starts guiding her towards them. And they pay out for her as well. So it's not just him who is getting the, the wins. It's whoever is going to play the machine that has the kind of flame red room above it. And again, what he's playing are these one-armed bandit machines. Yeah. Which, again, is a callback, you know, maybe to Mike or Philip Gerard, the one-armed man. But also this idea that uh, there's lever-pulling again. So that's what the blind woman did. So there's something to do with the imagery which is recurring in this scene, which is very indicative of what we've seen in earlier parts of Twin Peaks. Yeah, and we were talking before about the gaming imagery being in Twin Peaks a lot. <laughs> it just goes into overdrive because now... They're literally in a casino, surrounded by games. And he isn't playing by the rules. Hmm. Everyone else is playing by the rules. It's luck, which machines you're playing. Most people are losing. But he's playing outside the rules. He's able to make moves, see things that other people can't. Mm. And it just got me thinking about that whole line again, about how 
people with connections to these lodges who are from these lodges they play the game beyond the board with their own rules and they can make moves that other people cannot yeah and it's it's not just an, a metaphor for how they're behaving they are literally using in this case the the actual physical world of a casino and games to actually make that point very clear so i, I think they are emphasizing it for a very specific reason certainly when he goes and collects his uh, bucket of quarters i think he just says quite firmly game you know <laughs> when she says what do you want to do yeah um so that's an element of it which is coming up again and again in this there's games there's playing cards there's gambling all these things and they were in the original series and they're cropping up a lot now as well yeah and he also gets the wonderful nickname mr jackpots uh from the woman who he's helped to win what looks like several massive jackpots herself so we also get this scene where we're in the sheriff's department in Twin Peaks and Hawk and Andy and Lucy have dug out all of the old paperwork to do with the Laura Palmer murder and Hawk's trying to figure out what it is that's missing, what it is that's linked to his heritage, trying to kind of solve the riddle that the log lady has given him. And one of the things that struck me about this and several other scenes in the sheriff's department during the daytime is that the establishing shot of the Sheriff's Department, you see this beautiful shot of the sun coming through the trees in a way that form almost these sort of peaceful, heavenly rays above the Sheriff's Department. It's almost as if they're indicating this is where there is goodness and wisdom and light of the people who are in here who are trying to solve this case. Hawk, Andy, Lucy, everyone who is the kind of old school uh, Twin Peaks characters. Um, or it could just be that they thought it was a really beautiful shot, <laughs> so they decided to put it in. Well, the last time we saw light in the woods, it was potentially emanating from the White Lodge when uh, Major Briggs gets taken. Yeah. So I don't know if there's some visual callback there, but uh, there is something odd about the fact they keep doing that. Yeah. And we get this wonderful scene where they're trying to figure out what's missing, and Hawk is trying to explain to Andy and Lucy that just because things are there doesn't mean there's nothing missing because if it wasn't there, how would you know that it was missing? And they find it quite dis difficult to grasp this idea. Well, I wonder if this conversation actually has a bit more meaning to it because they're talking about how you only know that something is missing when you know it was there to begin with, but it's not there now. I do wonder if there's some of that idea more broadly bleeding into what's happening with potentially um, Cooper and Laura in the lodge. Hmm. Does that make sense? The people don't realise they are missing. Or people, some people don't seem to realise that Cooper is missing or that the real Cooper is missing. But the thing they do realise is missing is the chocolate bunny that Lucy ate <laughs> for bizarre reasons. And this was a callback to something from the original series. Um, I think anyone who's watched series one and two over and over again, um, <laughs> one of the earliest things that happens is I think when they're looking at um, the items that they retrieve from Laura's room uh, after she's been murdered is uh, the box of chocolate bunnies. And I remember that one scene ends with Cooper speaking into his uh, dictaphone 
uh, making a tape and he says you know diane i'm holding in my hands a small box of chocolate bunnies and it became this sort of iconic line um that came out of that and they have this funny you know is it about the bunnies spiel and it's it, you know it's funny in this episode but you had a really interesting idea about what this could actually mean about what is missing yeah so there are two things here first of all is that after this i couldn't get the uh second song from the musical episode of Buffy out of my head where everybody in the room has a theory about why everyone is singing and dancing all the time and Anya says I've got a theory it could be Bernie's <laughs> and it's just been going round and round in my head um, and that's beside the by other than the fact that we can't go through an episode without a Buffy reference so, so there is this week's Buffy reference um, but the thing that I thought of was because when we last saw Dale talking about the bunnies, he was recording a tape for Diane, I'm wondering if what's missing is the tape, or the transcript of the tape, or something to do with what he was telling Diane on the tape, because they were going through loads of evidence. So is there information on that tape that is actually more valuable than anyone realises, or that has a meaning that no one has quite grasped? Yeah, because the log is probably speaking in terms which don't make immediate sense they could be slightly tangential the clue could be a bit weird and it may be understanding events in a different way but yeah you're right i mean the bunnies are related very specifically to laura and the reference was made by cooper into his tape recorder and it's unclear if the tape recorder is still around uh, if the tapes are all recovered so maybe there's something like that maybe there'll be something where they find a, a log of all the cassettes but one of them is missing or something funny happens with that because um, there might be a recording which exists after the events of the original series which explains what's going on um, but the other thing is actually the diary yeah because there was always this thing about the fact that harold smith had laura's secret diary and they do recover it i know it gets destroyed it gets torn up doesn't it but they start to piece it together and that's one of the pages that's found that cooper realizes shows that he and laura shared the same dream was that from the secret diary or the regular diary that was from the secret diary okay but the question now remains what happened to the secret diary is that the thing that's now missing yeah because when annie told her to write into her diary that dale was in the back lodge and couldn't leave that must have gone into the secret diary yeah but we don't know that anyone ever read that. That's true. And we don't know if it really even happened. Because that would change everything. Which we, I think we mentioned that in our, in our episode zero. What yeah. would happen if um, the message was written down. But maybe it has been written down. And simply there is a message in one of the diary pages from the secret diary. That says the good Dale is in the lodge. Write it in your diary. Or, well she wouldn't write, write it in your diary when she's writing in her diary. Um, <laughs> but maybe that exists. And that will be the clue that tells hawk that that's where cooper actually is he never actually went missing he was taken to the black lodge and never emerged as himself it was the doppelganger who had the inhabiting bob spirit with him the whole time when he emerged into the real world yeah and the clue that the way hawk will find it is something to do with his heritage is that linked to the fact that i remember back in the original series he explains to people what the kind of concept of the black lodge and the white lodge are um that there's a religious concept of them 
it, so is it linked to the fact that he will have some knowledge um, about the, the the idea of what these lodges are? Yeah, because he clearly has, from his uh, Native American roots, in their mythology, they clearly have an idea of the Black Lodge and the White Lodge, and they know what these two things represent. They don't really... He never really talks in the original series about any knowledge of how you access them. Mm. But he's certainly aware that they exist and what they represent. And he obviously gives the speech about how if you face your shadow self with imperfect courage, it will utterly annihilate your soul. Mm. Um, so he does know how the thing works. And again, it's a callback to the secret history of Twin Peaks. There's a large amount of material at the beginning of that in particular, which is heavily rooted in Native American mythology, which uh, Meriwether Lewis comes along and finds out about so i think this idea of your heritage being important maybe he will come to realize that the myth of the black lodge and the white lodge will become clearer to him in such a way that he learns how to access them and he goes in and he's going to find coop and certainly that's a callback to what's happening in one and two because there's that scene where he has a second call with a log lady yeah and he's walking in the woods and he clearly gets to the Black Lodge, he sees the curtains, but the scene just ends, he doesn't go in. Yeah, I'm not sure where that scene actually fits in. Yeah, I think that's in the future from these events. I think he's going to worry about solving this clue, and maybe that scene comes, you know, weeks from now, maybe a year from now or something, when they figured out what's going on. Um, it, I don't think it fitted perfectly into that moment where it's played uh, in the original episode. No, because he's explained the original call from the log lady to other people. Something's missing, have to find it. He hasn't mentioned to anyone this other call. Yeah. And I, I just want to give, you know, a, a round of applause to some of the prop designers of this thing. Because I love the fact that this packet of chocolate bunnies, the slogan on it is, ears in the making. <laughs> Which essentially is what's happened to uh, the new season of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. There's also one additional Jacoby scene. Now, I'm starting to wonder if these Jacoby scenes are going to be this subplot that runs through all 18 hours and they'll gradually creep forward and be really critical at the end. <laughs> but we see this very strange scene of him in overalls spray painting the shovels that he received in the previous episode. Or, no, sorry, at the beginning of uh, part one. Hmm. Uh, he's spraying them gold. Um, he has, like, a rig set up to dangle them in the air. He's spraying them, he rotates them, sprays them again. That's all that really happens. And the one thing we notice when actually going back and watching episodes one and two again is when the shovels are delivered, they come in boxes. Mm. And there are clearly lots of other similar boxes uh, folded and stacked by the side, implying that he's getting deliveries of lots of these shovels. Yeah. It's not just the case that these are the first five he's got and he's spraying them gold. There are clearly indicators of there having been multiple deliveries of these shovels. So there's some ongoing thing that he's doing. It's Jacoby. He could be bonkers. I mean, I like the fact that when he's doing his um, uh, gold spraying, he's still got his red-blue glasses underneath his overalls. So uh, that's kind of interesting. But I don't know where that's going, but I can imagine this being a thread. I mean, again, if this is a one long film, this is just some subplot which is going to build over the hours and may have some payoff soon, may have it you know, near the end of the whole run. 
Yeah. If he's ordering nothing but box full of shovels after box full of shovels, his Amazon recommendation list must be bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> so part three ends uh, with the first appearance of both Deputy Director Gordon Cole, played by David Lynch, mm. and Albert Rosenfeld, played by the late Miguel Ferrer, who are talking in some FBI office with lots of other people about uh, a series of clues which all related to something they're referring to as the congressman's dilemma. Yeah, so we've got a picture of a woman in a bikini, a pair of pliers, a picture of two women in bikinis, a picture of a boy in some kind of sailor's outfit, I wasn't sure what that was, a gun with a silence on it, and a jar of what I think might be beans or bees. Yeah, I was very confused by the whole thing. This could be relevant. It could be just a side case that they're working on. Because all that happens is everyone gets sent out of the room except for one remaining agent who is revealed to be Tamara Preston. Mm. So for fans of The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which we've been mentioning a lot uh, in this series, Tamara Preston is the agent TP who is assigned by Gordon Cole to look into uh, the dossier which forms the basis of the secret history of Twin Peaks and she is there to show to Cole and Rosenfeld some footage which was captured at the scene of the crime where in part one the boy and the girl who were watching the box were attacked. They've obviously sent the FBI in to investigate it because the New York police don't understand what on earth was going on. They don't even know who owned the building, apparently, which could be crucial because we still don't know the identity of this mysterious billionaire. Um, they do know the identity of the murdered couple, and they've obviously confiscated all the equipment and all the memory cards. And we were wondering if maybe Cooper had appeared on the memory card because, of course, he appeared to us to be within the box just before they got murdered. Yeah. But it turns out that there are no images of him on the memory cards. Yeah. But what there is is an image of the weird kind of grey alien looking creature. A single image. It was only caught by one camera at one angle. Uh, and they all see it up on the screen and they're all like, what the hell is this thing? And they're all baffled by the fact that there are no forensic evidence clues left at the crime scene where this couple have been brutally... I mean, they show you a picture of what they look like after the attack, and bloody hell, literally. But it's weird also that the billionaire, or the person in charge, has not gone to retrieve anything from the site. Yeah. It's just been abandoned. So certainly the billionaire must know that the young man he sent to watch the box has been killed. Mm. He must know this. And yet they've just abandoned everything. And they've even left all the cameras there, including all the... Uh, access to all the footage which is kind of an odd thing to do yeah although now that you say that i've literally just thought what if there was a camera that captured more than that and that's the me one memory card they've taken away because they've obviously got lots of memory cards that the fbi have confiscated and they're uh, looking at them but like but there were multiple cameras and each camera had a memory card that's in. a good point yeah and i think that maybe if something was taken by the billionaire whoever that may be Maybe there was an angle that got more of the alien figure and also got Cooper. Yeah, that's a very good idea. 
So maybe one of them kind of slipped through. Like, a, you know, one there's some footage on one of them which is still available, but the others, are, all the others haven't been checked yet. Yeah. And there are, I think, three questions that still arise from this whole situation. Firstly, we know that the billionaire is referred to as some anonymous billionaire, but it's unclear yet whether they're male or female. So we don't know which character it could be. Yeah, because they didn't know the identity of the person who owned the building. And the next thing is whether that links at all to the person who is controlling Mr. Todd in Las Vegas, because there we know that it is a male character. So I originally presumed that maybe it is the same person, but actually it might not be. They could be unrelated at this point or in different timelines. And the third thing is I'm a bit confused as to how this crime scene was actually discovered because if it was kept so top secret how was it anyone knew that these two young people had been murdered um certainly it was being kept under such secrecy that how it would have got out that anything had happened inside is a complete mystery yeah i've got this horrible vision of some poor sod from the coffee shop down the road bringing a new delivery of coffee and finding them there in the opened room so they're, met, they're in the FBI conference room and Tamara Preston is presenting all of this evidence to them when suddenly they get a phone call patched through to Gordon saying, it's Cooper, it's Cooper. And they're just completely stunned by the fact that there is any news whatsoever about him. So Cole and Rosenfeld, they rush off and they take Tamara Preston with them into another room where Cole gets a phone call basically telling him that Cooper has apparently been found in South Dakota, uh, that he's been arrested, that he's in jail, something's happened to him, There's that, that he's not well or something. Uh, and he agrees that they're going to leave first thing the next morning to go and find out what's going on. And so this is actually important for later on. This is clearly putting a few of the events within a specific time frame. So we have Cooper being found after the accident. We have the New York events being close to this as well. Yeah. Because we know that the footage has just been recovered from um, that weird apartment place with the glass box. And also we know that now Cole Albert and Tamara Preston are going to be investigating this as well. And that's like a very specific time frame of these uh, plot lines as well. But what's also interesting here is that this is clearly the first time that Tamara Preston has been introduced to some of the aspects of the characters and the case which has taken place. Yeah. Uh, it's unclear if she's heard of Cooper before. Um, she may have done, but she just doesn't react very much to it. But it's strange. There's almost like a sense that Cole is asking her to become part of this investigation. And I think that becomes important for the next series of events and certainly what some of our theories are about what's going on that we'll discuss towards the end of the episode. Yeah, because if they didn't want her to be involved, they would have just said, I'll stay in the conference room, we'll be back in a minute to carry on with the presentation. But she specifically goes with them. So it's like they are kind of bringing her into the fold of of knowing a bit about what has gone on in the past. Yeah, and Cole is very specific that she should come along when they go to South Dakota. Yeah. And then we end with more music at the Roadhouse by the Cactus Blossoms. Yeah. Which is strange, it's just literally a cut to the Roadhouse. There's no scene there at all. Um, it's unclear how it fits in with the previous Roadhouse scene. But again, we have a theory about that and we'll come to that a bit later on. 
So part four begins with good coop, Dougie Coop, uh, in the casino, and he's just winning multiple jackpots. I think they say at one point he's won 29 mega jackpots, and then he points out to the old woman where the next machine is, and they say, right, that's a 30th mega jackpot, and the casino manager is close to having a complete meltdown about the fact that he's just lost a ton of money. But the weird thing is, you would think that if someone in a casino was winning that many very unlikely jackpots in a row, somebody would think they were cheating, wouldn't they? Yeah, and instead they are very gentle with him and actually seemingly quite happy with what's happened. You know, they're, they're very willing to help him out. There's no, there's not one of those tropes where you have the casino taking the winner out back and beating the crap out of them. <laughs> um, they're, they're not even questioning how he did it. No. They say you should come back again. And I don't think it's really said with any malice. They they generally want him to carry on. But again, this goes back to this idea that we were discussing, which is, is this just the next step in his journey as he's emerged into the real world and now he's um you know he's got lots of winnings obviously and he's about to return to his home yeah and one of the characters who does appear to just be there to push him in the right direction is he meets his friend bill shaker and it really bugged me as to who the actor was who was playing him because he was so familiar and eventually i caved in and looked him up on imdb and he was from my name is earl <laughs> <laughs> he was in he's been in loads and loads of films most of which I haven't seen, but they are very good. I think there's been loads of films by Kevin Smith. Hmm. Um, but the thing I remembered him from is My Name is Earl, uh, which he was in the whole thing. And he conveniently bumps into him in the casino. And Bill Shaker just happens to conveniently mention that he lives on Lancelot Court and he has a red door. And it's like this information is being drip fed into him in a way that he can slowly absorb so that when he's in the casino manager's office and is saying that, he wants to go home, he's able to say Lancelot Court. Also, what's odd about this is this is the person we get a surname, which is Jones. Yeah. And what's kind of funky here is, one, he's been given it at exactly the right time he needs because he needs to tell the casino owner. Yeah. I suppose not to arouse suspicion. You know, he has to have a name. But also, Dougie Jones is the most dull name <laughs> i think in some respect it's almost like it's it's a name designed to get him to blend in um if a fake cooper clone or something has been released into the environment it's almost like they've given him the most dull generic name they can apologies to anyone called doug jones <laughs> um just as a means to have him blend in and the other thing i would say is this lancelot court address it's near merlin market or something yeah. isn't it there's some weird Arthurian references coming in. So we have you know, Lancelot, Merlin, uh, Glastonbury Grove, the Sycamore Trees. Um, and certainly at the end of season two, Cooper directly says, you know, Glastonbury Grove, the legendary burial place of King Arthur. Mm. And I remember that in the original script for the end of season two, which is available online, Truman comes across, I think it's a female knight who has chainmail and she has like a sword and a shield and she's glowing and she hands Truman a sword or something there was some weird Arthurian um, imagery that was coming in there and I wonder if that's all going to come into play as well here it's it's strange how they bring up this Lancelot Merlin Glastonbury business uh, this time 
Yeah. And there are a couple of things that struck me about the scene in the casino manager's office. One is that there's this big black and white photo of somebody framed on the wall. And there's also a big black and white photo of someone framed on Gordon Cole's office wall. Hmm. And we recognise the person in Cole's office with uh, Kafka. Yeah. Uh, which is a nice little joke. Obviously, Lynch likes Kafka. But we couldn't figure out who it was who was in the casino managers. Yeah, office. if you know who that is, please tell us. Cause I, <laughs> it's probably not even that important. I don't know, but it seemed weird Yeah, um, that there was this very obvious, similar black and white portrait. It was also at a weird angle, so I couldn't see who it was. Um, but yeah, if you know who it is, please tell us. I'd love to know. Yeah, and the other thing that struck me about the way that it was filmed is that when the casino manager is reluctantly kind of giving over this giant bag of cash, do they even do that? Do they give people giant sacks of cash? Maybe they do. I've never been to a casino. Uh, but when he does, Cooper kind of leans in. And because he's almost learning to be a human again, he's mirroring what the casino manager is doing. So he leans in as well and they become really close to each other. But the way it's shot, really reminded me of the way they shoot some of the stuff where people are looking in a mirror and particularly the end of season two where Cooper kind of leans in to look at Bob's reflection in the mirror there was something really eerie about the way they did that and that happens again later on the episode when Dougie's back home he looks in the mirror in exactly the same way but this time he's clearly seeing his normal reflection and you do wonder if there's some reference they're trying to make to the last time that happened Cooper saw uh, Bob because the inhabiting spirit of Bob was inside him at the time. Yeah. So then they call a limo to take Dougie home and the limo finds the address because of the red door. So this is all really helpful information because obviously he's got no idea on him because that would have been in the real Dougie Jones's coat who has now melted in the red room. And he's standing outside the limo because he doesn't really understand he's meant to walk into his front door. And we get the first owl of the series. Because you hear the owl first, and then you see the owl flying mm. overhead. I think that's the first owl that we get. It is. And I think we'll foreshadow it, I suppose, a little bit now. But part four actually has a few Twin Peaks firsts in it for this season. Mm. So we obviously have the first owl. We have uh, the first scene of a character bursting into tears, which is Bobby later on, yeah. who does the classic... Twin Peaks character, distraught, sad, in extreme distress, bursting into tears. You have the first appearance of Laura Palmer's theme later on in the episode. Mm. Is there anything else? That's all I can think of off the top of my head. But there are some firsts here which are starting to, I think, put the show back in closer footing with the original Twin Peaks or just have more references to it to know that that town is still there and the centre of everything that's going to happen. Yeah, and then Dougie's... I assume she's his wife, Janie Jones. She's listed as Janie Jones in the credits and she's wearing a, a wedding ring. So I assume that, that it's Dougie's wife, uh, played by Naomi Watts. We were wondering when she was going to crop up. Unfathomably married to this Dougie Jones character, but there you go. Maybe that's another sign that things are not quite as they would appear. Uh, it seems a little bit unreal, but there we go. Uh, she storms out because he's been missing for three days and she doesn't know where he's been. And the limo driver explains he was in the hotel. He was by himself. He was to wait next to say he was by himself because clearly she thinks that he was off having an affair. And she, he actually was because he was off with Jade. Uh, but he's missed Sonny Jim's birthday party. It's presumably their son. 
uh, it certainly seems to be Janie's son. And this could be the birthday party where there are loads of balloons in the house. Yeah. And I wonder if one of these balloons has found its way to the house where the mother and the son are across the road from where Dougie and Jade are earlier on. Yeah, because there's a deflating red red balloon balloon in the background of that shot. And there's still balloons all over. They haven't really tidied up after the party, presumably because they're waiting for Dougie to come home. She says, oh, I've saved you some of the chocolate cake from the birthday. And then she's really angry with him. And then she looks in this bag and finds all this cash. And at first she doesn't quite believe that he's won it at the casino. But when, when eventually she kind of does come around to the idea, she's completely stunned and overjoyed. She has this wonderful line where she says, it's the most wonderful, horrible day of my life. And she says something about we can pay them back now. And I think this might become really important later on. So it's, it isn't entirely clear why Janie isn't quite registering the fact that he's behaving really strangely. No. Um, you would think that she would at least have some concern. At least Jade thought that he might have had a stroke. Yeah, but he's clearly lost weight. He's got a different hair colour, a different <laughs> haircut. He's behaving very strangely. He's not talking properly. She asks him, where did you get that suit? And Jade asks the exact same thing. Yeah. Where did you get that suit? And when things are repeated in the world of Twin Peaks, it kind of means something. Yeah. But what's also weird is if you imagine that this coupe who is now assimilating into Dougie Coop's life, has kind of got some kind of memory loss. I think it's interesting that he had, that David Lynch has chosen Naomi Watts to play this role, because obviously in Mulholland Drive, she looks after Rita. Mm. And Rita was the amnesiac who has survived the accident on Mulholland Drive at the beginning of the film. So there's some strange similarity there i don't want to over overplay it but it's it's interesting that she's again looking after somebody who may have been in some trauma and she's guiding them a little bit as well um, but she takes them at face value which is strange which is what happens here as well mm. so then we go to fbi headquarters in a scene which is a direct follow-up with the previous one that ended part three and we have gordon cole meeting with uh, Denise Bryson, played by David Duchovny, reprising his role uh, from the original series. And the first person who shows up uh, to greet him is a character called Bill, mm. Bill Kennedy, who's played by Richard Chamberlain, which immediately blows my theory out of the water at the end of our previous episode, where I thought that he might be the likely candidate for the uh, billionaire in charge of everything. So that's completely wrong. Um <laughs> But he greets him, they have some little conversation. They clearly know each other quite well personally as well. But what's interesting about the whole thing is that when Cole sits down, firstly, there are red roses on the chair next to him. Yeah. And there might be some weird FBI code thing going on here because obviously Cole uses the blue rose in his secret communiques to explain that a case is a blue rose case to uh, his agent, etc., I wonder if there's some meaning behind the red roses as well that are placed there. If they have mm. some secret code as well attached to them, I don't know. Maybe I'm clutching at straws again. Well, that Denise might be trying to impart some information to Cole, knowing that people might be listening in. Yeah, so maybe she has some way of communicating with him by saying, you know, the equivalent of this is a red rose case. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, but there, there could be something to that. It's weird that it's roses again. Yeah. And what's also cool is 
Denise has now risen from being a DEA agent in the original series to now chief of staff of the FBI. Mm. There's a nice funny scene where she's talking about being in the Federal Bureau of Investigation and how nice that sounds, which is odd because obviously for X-Files fans, David Duchovny was saying that for 10 years, you know, again and again. <laughs> um, so their characters have kind of finally found themselves in, uh, in the same institute as well. Now, what Cole basically is doing is he's there to explain why he's taking agents away with him uh, yeah. on this trip to see or trip to meet Coop, who has been found in South Dakota. It's clear that Denise already knows about the details of this case. And there are some odd comments that are exchanged. Firstly, about Denise implying that Cole taking away a young female agent seems to be indicative of some some kind of past slightly well potentially lecherous kind of misbehavior where he chases after female agents certainly he chased after Shelley Johnson in the original Twin Peaks as mm. well uh, maybe he's got that reputation for being a womanizer you know and going after young women all the time I don't know Cole also you know fires back a little bit that he has a lot of dirt on Dennis and Denise Bryson uh, but he never used it. And so I suppose that's kind of the veiled threat that, you know, we just keep these things out of it and we just get on with business. There's also a moment where they're both talking about how positive they feel about Tamara Preston. Yeah. And again, this is indicative. This is the start of her being involved in this because Bryson is saying, are you sure you want to take her, etc.? Cole is saying, I think she has the stuff to do it. So it's implying that he's trying to bring her into this environment and this type of case as well i think that cole does know that this will end up being a blue rose case mm. it's just that it hasn't been said yet and so and the funny thing is also uh, denise implying that uh, albert should turn up as well almost as a kind of chaperone for this whole event as well. <laughs> yeah she asks are you taking albert with you just just to be on the safe side because albert's not going to stand for anything she also tells him uh, I believe you're on the trail to something big, which implies I think that Denise knows more than she's letting on. And maybe you're right, maybe the roses are some kind of hint to Cole as to what's going on. But I, I think she knows information from from some other source as to how big this thing might be. Well, as chief of staff, she would know that Coop's gone missing. Hmm. She would know that potentially there's a link to Jeffrey's as another missing agent and maybe she knows that you know having been aware of what cooper was involved with in twin peaks many years ago she might also know there's going to be something funny about the resolution of his return so then we get this wonderful scene where you have lucy on the telephone at first you don't know who she's speaking to uh, it turns out that it's the new sheriff truman and at first glance it seems like she's being her usual kind of ditzy self where she's asking about what happens to the thermostat when no one is there to check what's happening to the thermostat. She says, we don't normally have prisoners, and even if we did, they couldn't look at it. And if we come in early, the heating is on, but if we came in even earlier, would it still be on? She can't grasp this concept. And she says something really interesting, which is that she called an engineer out recently and that Sheriff Truman wouldn't answer any of her questions about what was happening with the thermostat when no one was there. You then find out that she's on the phone to Sheriff Truman, which implies that the Sheriff Truman she was speaking to recently about this 
was Harry. So has he been sheriff this whole time up until very recently getting sick? I think so, because there was the comment earlier on that one Truman was sick and one was fishing. And so now we know that Harry Truman is the one who is sick and it must be recent. And Frank Truman is the one who is currently thought to be fishing and he's on his way back. Yeah, so she thinks that she's talking to him when he's out by stream somewhere fishing, but it's actually interference and he he walks through the door. She hasn't turned around yet. She says, I've got to go, Sheriff Truman. Someone's just walked in. She turns around, sees Sheriff Truman standing in front of her and freaks out and completely flips backwards in her chair. And on the surface of it, it seems like this just kind of funny, farcical bit with Lucy and Andy, where Andy comes in and is like, I don't understand how this keeps happening, punky. <laughs> if someone's on a mobile phone, they can be moving. But I think that this scene is massively important. I think there are two huge things going on in this scene. Uh, so you have to excuse me if I go off on a little bit of a tangent about them right now. The first thing I think is really important is her questioning of what's happening to the thermostat when no one is there to observe it. Because this is actually a philosophical question of what is reality without someone there to observe and interpret what that reality is. Um, The famous question of if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? But you can kind of go beyond that as a philosophical question and ask, does reality even exist? if no one is there actually observing it at the time. And it made me think of a conversation between Cooper and Annie back in the penultimate episode of season two. It's that wonderful scene where they're in the double R diner. Uh, She's working as a waitress. And it's a conversation just between the two of them and the camera moves slowly away from them as they're having this conversation. It seems like a really kind of romantic, flirty chat they're having, but there's something really sinister about the way the camera's moving get this ominous music coming in it ends with them uh, breaking the dishes and the the coffee glooping out of the coffee cup in slow motion and in that conversation she quotes Heisenberg where she says what we observe is not nature itself but nature exposed to our method of questioning and I think that this is what Lynch does sometimes with his characters who like Lucy might appear foolish and therefore comic relief within the show, but they actually pose very fundamental philosophical questions. And I think we are meant to question the nature of the reality that we are being presented with in the events that we have seen so far. Particularly, I think there are question marks over the reality of what's happening with Dougie Coop in Las Vegas. So it's actually a very profound question wrapped up in this slightly idiotic what happens to the thermostat when no one is there to check on the thermostat? So it's it's grounded in her naivety and in her asking this question almost like a child would ask about it. Almost as she has that kind of lack of object permanence that a very young child would have, where if you can't see an object, you're concerned that it stopped existing. And the second thing that I think is crucial in what she's saying is her inability to comprehend that she can be on the phone to Sheriff Truman and Sheriff Truman could be moving because Lucy has an old-fashioned static telephone and we've already seen her use it. She still 
still moves calls around with the little blinking light that she puts through to people. It looks very much like the sheriff station, at least as we've seen so far, is kind of frozen in time. It hasn't really changed that much. So as far as she's concerned, if she's having a conversation with someone, she's on a static telephone. So she's in one place and she is moving through time at the same pace as whoever she's having a conversation with. And therefore they must be in a static place in order to be on the phone. And they both have to be in their individual static places and then existing at the same time for the conversation to happen. So in her mind, she finds it difficult to grasp the idea that while she is static, somebody else can be moving through space and yet they are maintaining their conversation because that isn't how she observes how telephone calls work. And I think that this is pushing us towards a question of linearity in the rest of the narrative that we have seen and particularly some of the conversations that we have seen between characters whereby I think that we are meant to assume like Lucy that perhaps two characters exist within the same time and place as each other in order to have a conversation but that isn't necessarily true they don't have to be in the same place and they don't even have to be in the same time again I went back to something from the penultimate episode of season two where Coop and Harry are talking about the Black Lodge and the fact that there's going to be some kind of opening to it and Coop is trying to explain to Harry how it could exist in a point in time and he says a shooting star normally exists at a point in time over a continuation of space but taken from the star's point of view it's a completely different experience and I think that what you're seeing in how Lucy responds is someone looking at a shooting star but the way that Sheriff Truman is moving from the star's perspective it's a completely different experience as to how that connection is happening and it takes me all the way back to the opening scene in the the black and white room uh, with the giant if that is the giant and Coop where the giant says to Coop you are far away and Coop kind of folds up and, and vanishes and the fact that as you mentioned before there is no establishing shot that shows them there at the same time in the same place and I think that not only are they not in the same place I think they're not in the same time do you think you're going to see the inverse of that conversation where at some point Cooper will be having the conversation from a static location but the giant will be communicating with him from a different space and time and it'll be like the other half but played out to make this point more obvious I think we will I think there might be more than one occasions where we see the mirror of something that has already happened but from another party's perspective or that you see it from the other timeline within a, a kind of a, a linear order of events wow so um <laughs> going back to more mundane details what we do see in the new sheriff station well, the old sheriff station is it has seemed to have been renovated in some way or at least extended out the back because we see that there's a huge dispatch room at the back there's a much bigger staff than we used to see in the original twin peaks there are computers in there there are modern phones people with headsets which is kind of different to how you see things out the front with yeah. uh, with lucy so the, so it has modernized in some respects what is funny i think is 
the detail they have of having this huge set might indicate that it's going to become important later on. So I think you don't build a set like this and establish the fact that there's an infrastructure and a staff capable to respond to a large event without knowing you're going to use it mm -hmm. later on. So there are going to be, I think, moments when you are going to need a very large police presence in Twin Peaks itself. And it's going to act like some kind of situation room later on in the season. There was some weird little detail, though, which I don't understand still, which are the group of people who are kind of at the back of the room. I couldn't really yeah. make out what they were doing. They were kind of shuffling around at the back and um, some of them crouching down doing something. It was unclear. Yeah, it was this weird kind of tableau and I couldn't make out who they were or, or what role they were playing in the sheriff's office. But crucially, when Frank Truman shows up, he makes reference uh, when he's speaking to the dispatcher, uh, Maggie, about a kid who's been killed at the high school from a drug overdose. And I think it's interesting because basically that's what was also happening. This whole drug running thing uh, was a major plot point in the original Twin Peaks mm. uh, seasons one and two, where there were drugs being run across the border from Canada involving the Renault brothers um, and uh, Bobby as well, uh, uh, Mike and Bobby, Leo Johnson, etc. So there's clearly s still some drug operation that's, uh, that's going on. What's interesting is that it doesn't seem to be a, a bookhouse boy thing. Now it seems like a proper police operation, which is up and running. The reason we know that is when Truman is walking down the corridor, he meets for the first time uh, for the audience, Bobby Briggs, who is yeah. now a sheriff's deputy, uh, which is very bizarre. It's very ironic given his uh, his past. I mean, it's never obviously revealed that he killed a guy uh, in... <laughs> Yeah, I think in, in Fire Walking you see him kill uh, kill the other dude. That's never mentioned. But maybe this is his way of atoning for his sins. I mean, maybe he's trying to go straight now. Yeah. And maybe this is part of his uh, way of trying to fulfil the wishes and dreams that his father had. So obviously, Major Briggs had that vision of his son in the future. And maybe mm. he's trying to make that real by trying to turn his life around. And he seems like... You know, there, there was nothing shifty about him. He seemed like he was a valuable member of the police department. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if this drug thing is going to become a kind of major plot point in the Twin Peaks side of things. There's that comment that one of them makes about the kid who died at the high school, that the bell rang and he never got up from his desk. It kind of evokes this horrible image without even having to show anything. Um, so I don't know if this is all background detail or if that's going to become important. Because obviously the whole drug operation was important last time. And his name was Daniel Craig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was Dennis Craig, but they referred to him as Dan Craig. And that made me just immediately think of Daniel Craig. It was like somebody's drug James Bond. <laughs> so, meanwhile, in the conference room, Hawk has got all this stuff out about the old Laura Palmer case. And Sheriff Truman goes in to find out what's going on. Andy follows, Lucy follows. And then Bobby walks in and he sees the classic homecoming queen photo of Laura propped up against one of the boxes where they've unpacked all this stuff. And you hear Laura's theme emerge from the first time and he just bursts into tears because it brings back all of these horrible memories of what happened. And it's nice because it's the first real moment when you realise that modern Twin Peaks, it has moved on obviously, but these events from the past were significant enough that it's almost like they may have been buried. Mm. 
and all of a sudden these things are going to well up again. It's clear that the whole mystery of what happened to Laura is going to be at the forefront of this new season, even though at the moment it doesn't seem as obvious how that's going to work with so many different plots and locations at play. It really is bringing all the sadness and horror and fear uh, associated with the crimes back in 1990 back up to the present almost uh, and showing that although these things were forgotten over time they still resonate now when they're remembered yeah and you get a really interesting set of reactions from the people in the room uh, because you've got the new sheriff truman who is generally quite inscrutable I think I think we don't really know where he stands yet on a lot of these kind of weirder events that have happened on whether he he thinks it's nonsense or not he's playing his cards very close to his chest and then you've got Hawk in there who obviously remembers everything that happened and understands why Bobby would get emotional about it and then you have a, a new deputy in there uh, Chad I think his name was who is just deeply cynical and he kind of looks at Bobby as if to say, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, man? Why are you crying? There's uh, a real generational uh, gap between the old school Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department and the new young Sheriff's uh, Department. Almost like the younger ones kind of think the older ones just don't know what they're talking about. They're crazy and their methods are well past their sell-by date, etc. And I think even the older ones look quite cynically down upon the younger ones. Um, I can imagine that being some plot point they'll try and do. Yeah, and you see that also in the way they respond to the fact that Hawk is talking about the log lady. And Chad says, oh, I'm off to talk to my pine cone or something. And Andy gets really offended about this on the log lady's behalf. Because uh, he says, oh, how can they not understand that you know, she has this wisdom that she can impart to people? He says, no, she talks to her log as if it's something that he's just supposed to understand and in some ways it's almost like trying to explain Twin Peaks to maybe someone who's never seen it and you say oh yeah and there's this woman who talks to her log and they look at you and say what kind of show are you watching what what on earth is this but it also implies that hopefully Coop will return mm. in his regular state and he will bring back some of the mystical and magical and intuitive side of his uh, detective work. Mm. Um, it'd be nice if that's brought to the forefront again, almost to suppress the potential reliance that people might have on modern policing methods, which I'm sure are going to be shrugged off by the end of the series when giants and dwarfs start dancing around <laughs> the plotline. Yeah. Also in this scene, Hawk is discussing the message he has from the log with Sheriff Truman, and he's clearly repeating the clues again, and they're going through it. But it's odd that this is now the third time that they're really emphasising the importance of these clues in the overall mystery. The other really important piece of information we get in the scene is that when Hawke says it's something to do with Agent Cooper, Bobby reacts immediately by saying, of course I remember Cooper, he was the last person to see my father alive. And then you get this crucial piece of historic information where he says that shortly before my father died, Cooper came to see him and they had a conversation I don't know what it was about but my father died in a fire at his station the very next day and I was told all of this by my mother a few days later and apparently nobody has seen or heard from Cooper since then. Yeah so we know that there was a time 
probably a few days after he gets back from his entry into the Black Lodge, when he's around Twin Peaks, then he's gone. Now, this ties into the end of the secret history of Twin Peaks, the last event that happens. I think we mentioned this in a previous episode. Uh, Briggs meets with Cooper, knows something is wrong immediately, and says he's going to make arrangements, make plans, and it ends with the Mayday message. What we now know is after that, uh, Briggs apparently dies, and then soon after that, Cooper's gone. So something very fishy is going on here. Um, and again, we're going to come to that in our big theories at the end uh, when we try and tie together some of the strands which are taking place. But the key bit here is, yeah, we now know that uh, Briggs apparently died in a fire very soon after the events at the end of season two of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And after this, we get this wonderful scene in the parking lot outside where Wally Brennan, a.k.a. Wally Brando, has come to visit his parents. Yeah, so Michael Sarah turns <laughs> up in... It might just be a cameo in this one episode, I don't know. It's a wonderful scene where he wants to pay his respects uh, to Frank Truman um, about the sick Harry Truman. Mm. And he's gives this wonderful monologue flanked by Andy and Lucy. It's extremely funny. Watch that bit over and over again. It's hilarious. <laughs> I think the one thing that I really like about that scene is it really looks not improvised, but it's clear, I think, that Michael Sarah had a script with his monologue on it. I think uh, Andy and Lucy were told just to stand by him and listen to this and react to whatever he says, because they're trying not to corpse, I think, during the scene. <laughs> and they're also not sure when this speech is going to end. And Michael Sarah puts these wonderful vague pauses in and mm. then carries on this stop start monologue where it's unclear when this thing is going to end this rambling that he's going on about and it's really funny to watch and i think this is that thing where they were saying that uh, david lynch would only give actors the the scenes that they are in maybe the, only the dialogue that they had so if they were in a scene with somebody else they may not know what the other person is going to say i think this is one of those scenes and you can see that Andy and Lucy are just not sure when the scene is going to end, but they know they have to hold it together. It could even be one of those one take situations where you could never capture that again. And the reaction of uh, Frank Truman is quite funny. Yeah. When he's just watching this thing with his eyes rolling at the, at the whole series of events as well. The one interesting piece of information that might have come out of Wally's little speech, though, was the passing reference he makes to uh, the travels of Lewis and Clark which obviously features very heavily at the beginning of The Secret History of Twin Peaks. But again, he is talking nonsense, so <laughs> it might be nothing. Okay, so now we're at home in Lancelot Court, and Dougie Coop is waking up um, and still not really sure what's going on or what he's supposed to do as a adult human, I suppose. He looks around the bedroom and he sees a red chair, and then you get this kind of phase in between what he's looking at and the red room where he sees Mike and Mike is holding up the little golden ball bearing that came from Dougie Jones when he sort of vaporised yeah and he says you see me don't you you were tricked now one of you must die and we assume that that means that either the good coop or bad coop slash bob one of them now has to die because they can't both exist outside of the back lodge. And I want to go back to the idea of who those gunmen were who were trying to kill Dougie Coop. 
when he was leaving the Rancho Rosa development. I think there are two possible options of who these guys were. First of all, it seems that Dougie and Janie were in some kind of financial trouble because when Janie sees the money in the bag, she says, now we can pay them back. So it applies that he's, I don't know, lost money, stolen money. Somebody wants money from them for presumably nefarious purposes. So it's possible that the two gunmen who were sent to kill him were just sent to take him out because of whoever it was that he owed money to. And they'd followed him there. They knew that he was meeting with Jade. Uh, they knew where he was going to be. So they just staked him out afterwards and planned to kill him, either by shooting him when he was leaving or by uh, planting a, a bomb or whatever it was on his car. So that's one option. The second option is that if you think back to Bad Cooper at the end of part two, uh, where he's just killed Daria and he goes to the next motel room along and there's an, a woman in there played by uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, and he says to her, I need you and your husband in a very specific time and place at some point. But he doesn't elaborate on that at all. Now, I think that if it was Bad Coop's plan to avoid going back to the Black Lodge by creating some kind of substitute in the form of Dougie, so Dougie gets sucked back in, he would know that Good Coop would then come out wherever Dougie was by replacing him. And if Bad Coop Bob knows that at that point, with two of them in the real world, one of them has to die, it could be that he would know exactly what time this was going to happen, because it was going to be 2.53 on that particular day. If he had tracked uh, Dougie's movements and whereabouts and knew where he was going to be, then he could have sent hitmen to take out who they thought was just Dougie Jones, specifically after 2.53, so at a point where it would be Good Coop, because presumably if he could kill Good Coop, it would all be over. So then we see some interactions back at Dougie Coop's home with Janie and... Sonny Jim. Sonny Jim. Potentially their son, or maybe her son, and it's unclear how that all uh, works. Now, the interesting thing that uh, Janie says is, I think she calls him a dream weaver at one point, in reference to his slightly dazed behaviour. And this is one of those moments when you start to question exactly what's real and what's not here. Yeah. Because in light of everything that's happened in the journey that Dougie Coop is on, for somebody to deliberately call somebody a dream weaver in that context might imply that it's a it's a reality which he's creating around himself in some way. Or there's or indeed the whole thing isn't real. Maybe it's a whole it's a construct which is designed to bring him back to his original self by giving him all these prompts and signs. Yeah. And I've got to go back to once more we're feeling to uh, Willow's theory, which is I've got a theory. Some kid is dreaming. <laughs> they're, they're all useful. They all work as Evazanis, which just doesn't work at all. And when uh, Dougie Cooper's getting dressed, he's kind of standing there, and then Sonny Jim appears and gives him a thumbs up. Mm. And it's strange because there's a moment of recognition in Dougie Coop when he sees this and he reciprocates the thumbs up and he's kind of turning around doing it. But it's that moment when you realise this is part of Cooper, original Cooper, is coming back to him a little bit. Yeah. Almost like he's realised that this is a gesture which he 
reflexively can make. He doesn't need to copy it as much. So I think this is an element of showing that the people around him in this storyline are prompting him to recover his uh, personality. And maybe some of like even just by starting with his character traits as well. Yeah, and then we get the scene downstairs where they're having breakfast and you get some great comedy of the fact that he doesn't really understand how to make the pancake or how to eat the pancakes. And Sonny Jim is trying to get him to sit down, to pick up a fork, to he puts the syrup over his pancakes. And Janie is so preoccupied with what she's doing, she doesn't notice that Dougie has his tie wrapped around his head because he doesn't understand the concept of of how it's meant to be but he's also now dressed in this horrendous lime green jacket uh, which is similar to the kind of orange jacket that, that Dougie had been wearing before because um, Janie's taken his black suit away and says you're going to get it clean. I wonder if the key is still in it. I think the key is still in it. Because ha- he had the great northern key there and that must be a trigger which is eventually going to make him realise that's where he needs to go. He needs to go back to the great northern Yeah. Uh, and uh reintegrate with that in order to progress the mystery of uh, what's happening with Laura. Yeah, but you, the way that that whole scene is shot, you get loads of really kind of bright, citrusy colours. Um, there's kind of apples and oranges sitting around. Uh, Dougie Coop's green jacket is almost exactly the same shade of green as Sonny Jim's glass that he has his juice in. It's almost like a completely table. artificial environment it's like a dream it's a color palette which is not used in twin peaks at all it's too bright it's too sunny it's unreal in the twin peaks universe and also uh, you notice that uh, when he's sitting down having pancakes you see a little ceramic owl in the corner it's yeah. a cookie jar or something there's an owl looking over them the whole time and i wonder if these are just like one whole explanation of what's going on is that this is a construct of his mind as it's trying to work out how to deal with his return from the Black Lodge into reality. Yeah, there's been lots of occasions now of seemingly innocent background objects having meaning. So last time around you noticed that in the Black Lodge there was a lamp shaped like Saturn, Hmm. uh, which was a reference to the when Jupiter and Saturn meet. And we were listening to the Bickering Peaks podcast a few days ago, and they noticed that in the New York scenes... On the table next to the sofa, where the young guy sits and watches the box, the table has a bonsai tree on. And of course, it, a bonsai tree is essentially a callback to season two of Twin Peaks and has associations within Twin Peaks of people watching, people listening, people being spied on. So that's quite a nice visual clue that they picked up on. And since then, we've been looking at things in the background, trying to see just objects that have been placed on tables, on shelves that might be important. You notice the blue rose in the jar Mm. in the purple cube space submarine, whatever it was, earlier on. And now we've got this owl cookie jar, bright orange owl cookie jar, that just kind of stands out a little bit. And you're right, it's placed in a way that it's looking out over the scene. And we've already had the owl flying over the house. Um, when Coop and the limo driver were standing outside not wanting to go in. So there are owls gathering in Lancelot Court. <laughs> <laughs> that classic phrase from Grimby. <laughs> yeah, and the scene kind of ends. The whole Dougie story seems to reach a climax with the bit where uh, Janie hands him his coffee 
in this lovely little I am Dougie's coffee mug. <laughs> and he looks at it, he kind of says coffee uh, when it gets handed to him. And he takes one sip and he's kind of delirious. He spits it out with a huge grin on his face and he's completely over the moon. I think this is meant to be the moment when he, I mean, Coop was associated with his love of coffee. Yeah. And he spits it out almost like uh, when they're throwing rocks Mm. in season one. Uh, um, And Lucy is giving them all the coffee and it's too hot. And he takes a big gulp of it and he spits it out. You know, (laughs) he loves the coffee, but it's too hot. There's this moment where maybe this is the final bit of realisation that he needs. Um, It's unclear. Maybe there'll be lots of these steps, but you can maybe imagine that this is one of the big triggers where he knows this is something he loves and he's getting his personality and character back. So then we have this one really brief scene back in Buckhorn, South Dakota, where the police are still investigating the murder of Ruth and they think that they've got a hit on the fingerprints of the male headless body that was left with Ruth's head in the room. But everything's been classified by the military and they can't actually access the identity of whose fingerprints it is without military clearance. And that's all you really see of the whole buckhorn investigation in either of these two parts but it could be a very crucial piece of information which we're going to come back to later on so part four concludes with scenes again involving the fbi so cole rosenfeld and uh, tamara preston who have gone to south dakota to interview bad coop who they think might be good coop but they're not sure uh who's currently being held in a federal prison over there after the car accident where he was found and also the Garmin Bosier he threw up has is being deemed to be toxic and they're very suspicious. And I think in the back of his car they find some very dodgy items. They find cocaine, there's is it a machine, machine gun, gun with yeah. a silencer on it and a dog's leg. Yeah. <laughs> in which a is, plastic pack. Which is one of those typical details <laughs> which is just very disturbing. <laughs> yeah, so they fly in and there's that weird scene in the car where they're driving along and Tamara's kind of got her head half out the window because she gets car sick um and gordon has a couple of mishearing jokes why he says there's no cossacks around or something like that and he seems dismayed that they're nowhere near mount rushmore so albert hands him a photo he says i, I put you a picture and he hands cole a picture of mount rushmore and he just says there they are albert faces of stone <laughs> and you think what what is this it's interesting because it's almost like Albert <laughs> knew to bring this thing along because he knew that this thing would arise. <laughs> it's like an adult bringing something to pacify children <laughs> on a long car journey. They just know that he's going to get distracted or upset, so they brought something with them, <laughs> you know, to uh, to wave in his face. And it works as well. Yeah, it works. So they arrive at the prison and they're talking to the, um, the guards and they say, oh, the, the toxin report hasn't come back or whatever that was in the car, but it's hospitalised the patrolman. Um, so there's obviously something very, very nasty. Not on. creamed corn. No, it's not creamed corn. And then they go into this interview room where they're separated by some kind of mechanical door that opens up and reveals Bad Coop, kind of like shackled in the jail cell behind him. But Bad Coop is quite different now. Yeah, he's not right. So... The last time we saw him properly was just before the car accident and he was very confident and smug and evil and powerful actually before this but 
when he threw up all the Garmin Bosia, we, we kind of left him slumped in his car. And now it's he seems almost weakened and back to the nascent state that we first saw Coupin when he was first uh, out of the Black Lodge, or his doppelganger was out of the back, out of the Black Lodge, inhabited by the spirit of Bob as well. So he speaks in a very slow, deliberate fashion. Every word is a struggle as he's trying to uh, form words, sentences, etc. It reminded you a lot of the... Uh... Oh, I, I need to brush my teeth. Yeah, or, I, I want to brush my teeth. Yeah, again, you have the repetition. Yeah. Uh, I think it was, yeah, I need to brush my teeth. Yeah, he, he, he kind of sits very stiffly and says this in a very stiff and deliberate manner, like he's trying to construct what a human sentence would be in front of other people. And then when he's by himself in the bathroom, he can be Bob Doppelkoop hmm. uh, and be completely nuts. But yeah, it, it reminded me of that stilted, uh, kind of almost robotic way in which he was speaking when he was speaking to Cole. And there's a word that he doesn't actually say right. Yes, so I can't remember if it's Cole who speaks first or it's Coop, but he's meant to say, I'm very, very glad to see you. And instead, what he says is something like, I'm you're very glad to see you with the first very actually said backwards, mm. which almost implies that the reason why he's finding it so difficult to speak is his urge, even in the real world, is to speak in the backwards tongue, which is used in the Black Lodge. Yeah. So this must flag very obviously with Cole. It's it's interesting to know whether Cole has seen this before, if that's going to be a plot later yeah. on, or if he just finds it odd that he said a word backwards in the middle of his speech. Yeah, because later on he says to Albert that, that Cooper, he didn't greet me properly if you get my meaning. And I don't know if that was what he was referring to, the backwards word. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was that or, you know, it was the classic Cole Cooper point and click. You know, which yeah. is how they greet each other. Maybe it was the fact that the thumbs up didn't seem particularly full of energy. It okay. looked like he was trying to mimic how you would do a thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, but it was strange. I mean, how how evil Coop could suddenly have lost all of his power is kind of interesting. But that does work if the theory is that he's thrown up his Garmin Bosia and therefore he has none of that energy anymore. So he's back to his nascent form that he was at the end of season two. Yeah, so they had this weird conversation where Bad Coop claims to have been working undercover with Philip Jeffries and that he was going to come to Cole and uh, report to him everything that's happened uh, just before he had his accident. And he repeats some of this as well, uh, which is again very suspicious. So uh, he, he, he kind of seems to be aiming for Cole to get him out of prison, basically. He says, I really need to be debriefed by you. He's clearly thinking, how am I going to get out of this situation? If the FBI think that I'm Cooper, I can get them to get me out somehow and then I can I don't know, escape, presumably. Uh, but his, the, the wheels are turning just very slowly. Yeah, so then as they're leaving, uh, Cole says to the warden, uh, I want you to give Cooper his private phone call and I expect to hear all about it, <laughs> which is a nice touch. And I wonder who it is that Bad Coop is going to call. Um, whether it's somebody from Bueller's gang, 
or somebody completely unconnected to that, another lodge spirit, whoever it is that he calls, the FBI are presumably going to be led straight to them and I wonder if this is going to progress the next stage of the investigation. So when they're outside, you get this weird blue filter to everything. I mean, it's so hyper-stylized. It's like a Michael Mann thing. Out, yeah. of, out of heat or something. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like there's an incredible blue filter on the whole thing. Presumably that's because this is a blue rose situation. Yeah. Um, I mean, it looks really cool and it's clearly shot at that time of day uh, when you might have something approximating that light. But it's so intensely blue. Yeah. What is it the course says? It, it doesn't get any bluer. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they start to have a conversation outside and Tamar Preston asks them, who is Philip Jeffries? And this is really important, because uh, at this point it's clear she doesn't know who Philip Jeffries is. Cole then reveals that Tamar is wearing a wire, and she says, kind of, well, you asked me to wear a wire. So that there's a question there as to why was she doing that? Was it so that somebody else could be listening in? Is it so they could record what Bad Coop was saying uh, without the prison staff knowing? We don't really know why that was. But they then ask her to go and wait for them somewhere else, presumably so that Cole and Albert can have a conversation without it being recorded or overheard by whoever it is intended for this wire to be going to. So one thing that happens in the conversation between Bad Coop and the FBI is that he says something along the lines of having left messages so Philip knows it's safe. So this mm. must be Philip Jeffries. And he gives this look to... Albert and Albert kind of looks down in a way he clearly knows what this is about and Cole senses this and looks at him knowing that there's more to Albert's involvement than he's letting on so far and when they're outside they actually discuss this. Yes yeah, so once Tamara has left and they're speaking without anyone overhearing Albert reveals that many years ago Philip Jeffries called him and asked him for a piece of information and said that it was necessary for Cooper to have it and that Cooper was in big trouble and Albert believed that Cooper was in trouble. Presumably this was after Cooper had disappeared and the FBI didn't know where he'd gone and he admits to Cole that he gave Jeffries the identity of their man in Colombia. The relevance of that we're not really sure. I mean I suppose the one thing is in the missing pieces Jeffries is transported back to Buenos Aires. Yeah. So maybe he's just generally hanging around in South America. Mm. Uh, as a means to do something later on in Colombia. Yeah, and that within a week of giving him this information, uh, their man in Colombia was killed. And he's obviously never admitted this to Cole afterwards, but feels very guilty about it. And one very interesting thing about this scene is when they're having the conversation, they're kind of whispering if they can. They don't want anyone to hear them, clearly because they're about to discuss the fact this could be a Blue Rose case. And Cole turns his hearing aid up to its maximum and there's a bit where Albert shuffles his feet on the floor a little bit and you hear this tremendous kind of scratching sound which Cole claims kind of grates in his head it's so loud because his hearing aid is now so sensitive and I think this is kind of important we'll discuss it in a little bit but this is one of those moments where one questions exactly what the ultimate meaning of the giant's phrase was earlier on at the very beginning of part one when he says listen to the sounds mm. because we have an interesting situation where Cole is suddenly hypersensitive to sounds around him 
we also have the owls earlier uh, outside Dougie Coop's house when he gets brought back by the chauffeur. Yeah. And you hear this owl and then you see it. But there's that listen to the sounds idea. The same with the blind woman as well. She can technically only listen because she cannot see at the beginning of part three. And it ends with Cole and Rosenfeld deciding that they're going to need somebody to work out if the guy they're speaking to is actually really Cooper. Because they know that there's something wrong. They know he's not talking properly. He's not greeting them properly. There's, they know that there's something amiss about the whole situation. Probably even the fact that he's just suddenly shown up. And they make reference to the fact that they need to find somebody who is female who will be able to verify that this is the real Cooper. And Cole says something like, do you know where she lives? And Rosemold says, I know where she drinks. Mm. And that's how it ends. Yeah. Cue the music at the roadhouse. Yeah, where Au Revoir Simone are playing. Yeah. So who could it be? Who is the uh, the woman who could potentially tell Coop from not Coop? Right, so if we're looking at a returning character, there aren't a tremendous number of people who it could be. So it could be Sarah Palmer. Now, we've seen her at the end of part two. She was sitting alone, looked like she had a drink problem. There is a publicity still that's come out of her uh, pushing a trolley around in the alcohol section of a supermarket. She can clearly see Bob in these visions, and she might have had a psychic connection with Dale as well. So mm. one wonders if they brought her in, would she be able to see that it was Bob inside? The other person, potentially Annie. Mm. So clearly it hasn't been announced if Heather Graham is returning as Annie Blackburn, but the implication might be that she knows Cooper well enough that she can figure it out. I don't think that's really true. And certainly, would she really have become a raging alcoholic? afterwards i don't know maybe the events of uh, <laughs> the end of season two might have done that to her i don't mm. know potentially somebody who knows her very well but has never been seen is the infamous diane so cooper's secretary now she arguably could appear and be somebody who knows him so well that she would be able to tell that it's not cooper mm. one thing i would say might be against that is the fact that it seems like the kind of mystery that doesn't need to be resolved. Of who Diane is. Yeah, it's almost like the problem that Lynch and Frost had when they were forced to reveal who killed Laura Palmer. Certain things just aren't meant to be found out. And maybe having Diane as some mythical character who is real but is never seen works quite well. She could be like the Maris of, uh, yeah. of this programme. What about Audrey? Could be Audrey. You can imagine her potentially losing it in the years after... Um... Well, she almost got blown up in a bank. That's got to leave its mark. She doesn't seem to be around the Great Northern. You certainly didn't see her with Ben and Jerry in the scene in the Great Northern. She wasn't around then. Um, maybe she's flown off to Brazil to find John Justice Wheeler. Who knows? But it is odd because Cole asks Albert if he knows where she is. Yeah. And he says, I know where she drinks. Yeah. Now, Albert wasn't in Twin Peaks a long time. So it might not be a Twin Peaks resident. So maybe it is actually somebody like Diane. 
Um, could it even be Judy? Could it be somebody even more mythical in this whole plot? I don't know. It has to be somebody who Albert knows quite well as well. So maybe it is Diane. I just find it odd that they would choose to reveal who Diane is. Yeah, I think it has to be someone who we have either seen before or who has been referenced before. Just the, the way they did that whole right at the end of the episode. Do you know where she lives? I know where she drinks. It's, in, it's intended to make the audience think this is going to be someone important. If it's a brand new character, it would feel really odd after that kind of introduction. So we thought, first of all, we'd like to address some of the theories that we had last time and which ones have changed and which ones have just completely collapsed. Yes, so some of them have advanced based on what we know now. We kind of wanted to provide an update on what, and where we are with those. So the first thing comes from a rewatch as well, but it's about that black and white prologue with the giant and Cooper at the beginning of part one. Now, the one thing we did notice was in the background of this, it doesn't look like there are drapes. It looks like there's some kind of industrial metal or wood background mm. in the back of the room, implying that this is not potentially a lodge environment we've seen before. Now, we didn't notice that before, but we think that could tell us something about the location that we're in. The other thing that was more to do with it being black and white was whether this could just be a reference to it being old. Yeah. And it could be a bit of a spoof by Lynch and Frost saying at the beginning of the first episode, look, this is the Twin Peaks that you remember. There was a giant talking to Cooper. This is how it used to be. And then to suddenly change it, it could just be a jarring event where they deliberately shot it a different way. And it might be saying, look, season three is going to go in a very different direction, which is why we suddenly burst into the colour um, of the new form of the Red Room, how that's represented as well. What we have discussed as well is this idea that it's a bit like the Doctor Who episode of Blink. And we discussed this a bit on Twitter as well earlier yeah. this week with the people at Bickering Peaks as well about the fact that this could be two parts of a conversation synced up when we're watching it now, but they could actually be taking place in different space and time. Mm. And uh, that kind of goes back to your theory about what's meant by Lucy's conversation uh, when she's trying to uh, work out how the mobile phone works when she's talking to Frank Truman. The other section about that is when Coop responds, I understand. Now, I don't know if that implies that this is not a mystery to Coop when mm. the giant gives his three clues. Is the Coop who is sitting opposite him or receiving this information actually a future version of Coop who has already experienced what the resolution to these clues is is it like him just looking back over an old message almost and saying in acknowledgement i know what you're talking about yeah because last time he got the clues he didn't understand what they were and then they were very quickly revealed to him over the next couple of days but is this almost in reverse is he now getting this message and he's looking back and it's things that have already happened and he already knows how to interpret them. And the last bit is kind of what we're talking about at the end. It's this whole idea of the phrase, listen to the sounds. Now, it could just be a message saying you should really put the volume up on your TV. <laughs> um, but like we were saying, there's something going on here with the gramophone playing, the sound of electricity that's permeating this mm. series. 
Gordon Cole turning up his hearing aid to maximum so he can hear everything that's going on and the blind woman in that purple space submarine cube as well. This is going to be a phrase which I think is going to be important uh, in later episodes as well. And we're going to see more and more elements of people listening. Mm. Uh, the same with the owls as well, as we were saying. And also when we went back and rewatched the scene where Bad Coop has just killed Daria and he's on that strange FBI phone suitcase thing um, to somebody who he thinks is Philip Jeffries. The strangest thing about that was the guy on the other end of the phone, whoever that is, says, I will be with Bob again. Hmm. And it's it's probably nothing, but we were wondering if the voice does at all resemble that of Wyndham Earl. Yeah. It's kind of got that strange graveliness to it that Wyndham had when he was in kind of his angry mode. And it would kind of be interesting because I don't actually fully understand what happened at the end of season two with Wyndham. In the sense that, I mean, yes, Bob came and took his soul away and he kind of seems to have dissolved in flames. But with all these funny things happening regarding timelines and the existent states of people in and out of the lodge as well, it would be kind of interesting if actually being with Bob again means maybe he wants to get his soul back. And maybe he's somehow involved in this. Yeah, because he doesn't really exist any longer in the real world, does he? So he would be nowhere. He, he would be nowhere. Or, or existing in the Black Lodge in a state where he can only exist if Bob is there, if Bob has his soul. We don't really know how that works. And interestingly, um, in the secret history of Twin Peaks, there's a section where a list of agents associated with the Blue Rose cases is made. And I think it's... Cole, Albert, Cooper, Rosenfeld, Jeffries and Earl as well. So it's strange because Earl does figure into the secret history and one wonders if he is tied to this whole Blue Rose mythology. Yeah, the other thing we rethought when we rewatched parts one and two, uh, just a few hours ago actually, is uh, Tracy and what exactly it is she's doing there. We listened very carefully to exactly what it was that he says to her at the beginning which is hi Tracy you didn't have to bring it yourself and she says I brought two can I join you so what I think is happening is she works at a nearby coffee shop he has ordered delivery coffee because apparently that's a thing in New York uh, and she has brought it up to him and he didn't realize that she would be the one delivering it because he says aren't you supposed to be working? And she says, oh, I got off at 10 o'clock. This is obviously after 10 o'clock at night. And then uh, he says, I'll stop by on my way in tomorrow. She says, oh, if I miss you, I'll maybe bring some more coffee same time tomorrow night. So I think that what this is, is that she works at a nearby coffee shop that he goes into when he's going to work. They've been flirting with each other. They quite like each other. Um, when she finds out that there's a delivery going out to him, wherever it is that he is, she says, ah, I'll take it to him. Uh, so it, I, I'm not sure that there's actually anything else that she's up to other than she likes him and she decided to, to bring the coffee himself so that she could flirt with him some more. Yeah, because originally we thought it seemed quite suspicious. Her behaviour seemed a bit odd when she's trying to look at the keypad, etc. Yeah. That could still be the case, but you're right. It doesn't seem obvious how that really plays into it. It could almost play as a more disturbing aspect if 
they were both just pawns in a much bigger game. Yeah. And they both just got brutally murdered uh, by this being. Uh, but it wasn't related to anything they were doing in advance of this. And additionally, what's going on with these doppelgangers and copies as well? These clones of people who seem to exist in the world. So we know that the doppelgangers so far seem to be the light and the dark sides of a person. But there now appear to be people who have been placed in the real world. You know, represented, for example, as Dougie, who is a trick, who is represented by that gold ball bearing yeah. and the owl ring as well. What are these people? Are they also doppelgangers or are they clones? Because Maddie was around as well. And Maddie was Laura's cousin, but she was technically just a like a, a look-alike in that respect, wasn't she? she yeah, she just had different colour hair. That was the only difference between them. Really. Yeah, it was never implied that she was a doppelganger of Laura, but she just looked like her. So you do wonder how this is all going to play out. Um, certainly there's now a, a clone of uh, Jacques Renault in the form of Jean-Michel <laughs> Renault, yeah. um, who, you know, he can't be a brother because they've said there are only three brothers. He must be the cousin. So maybe there is some implication that there is the possibility of having clones as well as doppelgangers around. And the fact that there's a clone of Cooper, does that mean other characters have clones? Um, I mean, what I was thinking about is whether this ties back to what Laura says in the Black Lodge when she says, I am alive yet I'm dead, or I'm dead, yet I'm alive. I'm dead, yet I live. Yet I, yeah. So maybe that means that a really freaky theory would be if the clone or copy of some kind, a trick version of Laura, was placed in the real world to get killed. And now what's happened is, with that version gone, Laura is able to leave the lodge. Yeah, because we're no closer to understanding where she went to. Yeah, she kind of whooshed up into the air, and then all you have is a message from Leland saying, find Laura, which means maybe she's out in the real world now mm. or in another location. We're now in a minute going to talk about this kind of grand theory that we have been uh, developing over the last few days um, that goes not just into the first four parts of the new series, but also very heavily into the secret history of Twin Peaks. And the reason we're putting it at the very end of the podcast like this is because we don't want to give massive spoilers for Secret History of Twin Peaks if someone hasn't read it yet, or if somebody would rather not hear this crazy theory of ours on the 0.001% chance that there might be something to it. I, I don't know. We're, we're putting it right at the end, so if you'd actually prefer not to hear any of this stuff, you're very welcome to switch off now. Thank you so much. You've already been with us a very, very long time, um, and we hope that you've enjoyed all the rest of the stuff we've had to say. We're going to come back in just a minute and talk about something big to do with Secret History of Twin Peaks and Buckhorn, South Dakota. So we mentioned it in our last episode, but it's very clear that this is not an unstructured mess of strange events and occurrences which are all just mishmashed together just for the sake of it. This is, looks like a very deliberately planned and well-orchestrated reveal of a series of events which I think will come to make relatively 
concrete sense in the broadest terms at the end of these 18 hours. I don't think it's going to be left with great gaping holes in the plot. I think there'll be lots of things left unanswered, but the arc of the story will be solid. And I think it's like what we were saying last time. This is where the hand of Mark Frost is really going to be shown in these episodes. Because having read the secret history of Twin Peaks and understood how both him and Lynch uh, have really spearheaded this and the original incarnation of Twin Peaks as well, he does know how to weave a very intricate tapestry of characters, locations and arcs into a world that Lynch can play around with artistically on screen. And also, I think they are very aware, both Lynch and Frost, that everything that's happening is going to be poured over by fans. The minute the episode airs, people are going to be trying to work out exactly what's going on. I mean, it's, it's all that we've been able to think about um, for the last few days. So I think all these things tie up in some way in the mythology of this season of Twin Peaks. And there will be lots of changes and ideas in our theories. And hopefully you'll come on board too. And it'd be great to kind of exchange theories and ideas. But we kind of want to talk about what we think might be happening. And it all is linked really to two major aspects of the mythology that we've observed. One is to do with the secret history of Twin Peaks. And the other is to do with the presentation of the material from different timelines concurrently on screen. So we think that they're happening in a certain order, but we may actually be looking at events from different times juxtaposed with each other. And this is actually something that we got thinking about after listening to the Bickering Peaks podcast, mm. where they were pointing out some of the inconsistencies in the episodes if these were to be a linear series of events. So the first thing is about, very broadly, the secret history of Twin Peaks. Now, initially we were thinking, do the numbers come from here? There's a lot of numbers in these episodes. The 253, the 430. Given that 253 is a time, 430 might be 430. That could be a time as well. But we do wonder if there are elements of these numbers that are occurring in the secret history of Twin Peaks. But whilst we haven't been able to find anything obvious in there, we did start wondering whether actually, as we originally speculated... The secret history of Twin Peaks is largely accurate and relevant for this upcoming season. And one key thing that we've noticed is that there hasn't really been that much factual disparity between what's been presented on screen so far and what you can read in the dossier, even though we know there are likely to be elements of uh, misdirection in that. It doesn't seem that there's too much of a problem with it. And I think it will turn out that a lot of those things in the secret history will turn out to be great background at worst or at best directly linking to what we see on screen. Now as many of you will know the first code that was really cracked in the secret history was the one featured on page 236-237 of the secret history which is the archivist note related to the bookshelf at the bookhouse where the message fear the double was encoded in the first word of a series of book titles uh, on the shelf. And this idea of fearing the double is important here because we have initially 
an idea that there is the evil coop floating around but now we're starting to wonder if there are other doubles floating around in this universe as well some of them good and evil some of them these pawns in this larger game these clones who are being produced to manipulate uh, how characters are able to transition in and out of the black and white lodgers characters like uh, dougie coop for example and potentially maybe even a laura clone that might be floating around uh, or clones of other characters as well such as uh, phyllis and jack who have both been targeted by bad coop after they've served their purpose for him so this idea of fearing the double i think is going to be important but not just for coop but for lots of characters as well potentially another thing has come out was something i saw in a youtube video that somebody linked to on twitter which was a reference to what happens on page 293 of the secret history which is an event where dougie milford is shown a strange alien creature by Richard Nixon of all people <laughs> and the description of the alien or the creature that they see uh, some people have actually proposed that that uh, fits very well with what's seen appearing in the glass box so it's some kind of strange creature with large black eyes that's able to kind of phase in and out of existence as well and it seems to have this look of a grey type alien which is what we thought we originally saw in this box when it first appeared and certainly it's seen at least in this description by Dougie Milford as something that he sees through a glass panel implying that maybe there's some chamber or glass box which is being used even back then to capture these kind of lodge spirits or aliens or whatever they actually are so that was pointed out uh, on Twitter uh, earlier on now we started looking um, a lot at what the secret history really contained. I think there's going to be a lot of details in here which might come to the surface over the coming weeks. But one thing that was really interesting was the moment in part four where Tamara Preston is unaware of who Philip Jeffries is. Now the secret history on page 311 has a document which Tamara Preston has seen because she's the one who's been assigned by Cole the task of going through uh, the dossier which references Philip Jeffries and she writes a note in the uh, margin as she does with lots of the other documents where she clearly knows that there is a guy called Philip Jeffries and she knows that he was somebody who worked alongside Cole at some point in the past. So what's strange is that we know that the Tamara Preston who's seen the dossier is in the future of the one we've seen in the TV show up to episode four. Yeah, because she specifically asks Cole who Philip Jeffries is. She doesn't seem to have ever heard of him before. Yeah, so this implies that the dossier itself hasn't been discovered because we know from the secret history of Twin Peaks that Cole gives Preston the role of looking at the dossier and analysing it and annotating it. And if we look at the very first documents that are in Secret History of Twin Peaks, it's the memos in which Cole is assigning this work to Preston. So there's one on the 4th of August 2016, which is from Cole to her saying, this is confidential information, this dossier was handed to Cole on the 17th of July 2016. Now that was the date that it was referred, it's not the date that the dossier was recovered. That date is very specifically redacted within the document. It says that it was recovered from a crime scene 
under active investigation and that is still unsolved. And he's handing it over to Preston for analysis. And all he says is that they need to discover the identity of who compiled it as soon as possible and that there is some relationship to the crime scene in which it was discovered and some investigations that were done by Special Agent Dale Cooper many years ago. So along with the dossier, Preston has also been given access to all of Cooper's files, his tapes. The location of where the dossier was found has been redacted, the names of the agents are redacted, the date on which it was discovered at the crime scene has been redacted. And I think what we're seeing in part four of Twin Peaks is, as we were saying earlier, Gordon Cole introducing Tamara Preston to the world of Dale Cooper almost. And so you could see this as being a precursor to him trusting her enough to put her in charge of ultimately going through the dossier, which again places the current events with the FBI investigation on the TV show prior to the discovery of the dossier and Tamara Preston's annotations and investigations of it. Yeah, so what do we know about this dossier and the way in which it was found? Well, we're told in those early documents in the book that the dossier itself was found locked in a carbon steel lockbox. It wasn't a standard size, it was 17 by 11 by 3, had a triple lock mechanism. They think it was bespoke made possibly by the archivist who compiled the dossier and that it was custom made to fit the dossier. So the dossier inside has got a bit of wear and tear on it but has otherwise survived pretty much intact and all the documents inside are still readable. Now this is where we're really going out on a limb here but we wondered whether all this meant that given that the dossier is recovered from an active crime scene which relates to what's going on in Twin Peaks, whether the crime scene that they're talking about is one that we've already seen on the TV show in season three. And we actually wonder if the crime scene is in fact the Ruth Davenport crime scene, because that's an active crime scene. It clearly has some relationship that we know about as viewers to what's going on in Twin Peaks and with Dale Cooper. And there are some very interesting things which happen in that scene and in the secret history that imply that there may be a connection. So lots of the important details within the dossier are redacted. They've got black pen through them. What we were intrigued by was the content of, I think what's called the dossier processing timeline, uh, which is like the second document in the secret history. And what that says is, Field agents redacted and redacted discovered dossier whilst on assignment in redacted. Now, we're not sure at all if this is true. Um, I haven't seen anyone else discussing this. I apologise if it's already floating out there. But we were really intrigued about whether the location which has been redacted is actually Buckhorn Hmm. or Buckhorn, South Dakota. And what's happening is that that crime scene is the place where this lockbox has actually been found. Yeah, because if you look at the length of the word that's been redacted in that document, it doesn't half look like you could fit the word buckhorn in there. And certainly the fact that the date is redacted as well, but the date of referral is not, implies that when it's originally found, could actually make it take place maybe in 
2015-2016, which could fit with the timeline of some of the events we're seeing being 25 years after 1990, rather than being in the present 2017. So then the question is, what is it that would link this crime scene in Buckhorn, where Ruth Davenport has been murdered, to the Twin Peaks murders that Dale Cooper investigated 25 years earlier? Well, part three has done something very interesting. It begins with the shot, the eraser head-like shot, of Major Briggs's head floating past Dale Cooper in space, and he mouths Blue Rose. And it ends with the reveal that the fingerprints on the corpse, but not the head, which is Ruth Davenport, which has been found at the crime scene, are top secret and they're to do with the military. So you have the image of a head at the beginning of the episode and the identification potentially of some aspect of the corpse later on. So one guess that you could make from all of this is that the body that we see at the crime scene is that of Major Garland Briggs. And the one other thing about the corpses would be that it'd be really interesting if at some point we see an inverse corpse where we do find Briggs's head and uh, Ruth Davenport's body in mm. some way, because that would be a nice symmetry to what's going on. Yeah, and although we're told by Bobby, in fact, that his dad died in a fire at his listening station only a few days after the events of the end of season two seem to have happened, this would not be the first time in Twin Peaks that a character had, air quotes, died in a fire... <laughs> And then turned out afterwards not to have died in fire at all, but to have gone into hiding, changed their identity maybe, uh, changed their name, and decided that they were going to come up with a very elaborate plan for, uh, for what they were going to do next, once they were apparently to everybody else completely dead. Because of course that's exactly what Catherine did. Now I think it's strange that the corpse is not massively decayed. It's old, but it hasn't been there for 25 years. Yeah. So one would suspect that maybe Briggs has faked his death back in 1990 after he knows that there's something wrong with Cooper. And he's gone into hiding, maybe to protect the secrets that he knows about, maybe to conduct his own investigations. But it's over that 25 years that maybe he starts putting together the dossier because he knows it's going to be important in some way. Yeah, and we were wondering to ourselves, what connection could there be between him and Ruth Davenport? Well, Ruth Davenport is a librarian. The person who compiled the dossier is referred to as the archivist throughout, but we now know that the archivist is Major Briggs. So is it possible that the two of them were communicating about something, that he had gone to her because as a librarian she had access to some kind of documentation that he wanted to look at for putting it into the dossier? Was it information that she was able to get or some kind of archiving techniques or it could have been anything along those lines? I mean, certainly there's something very striking about the fact that in part one we see a headless corpse and then in part three we see just a head floating on its own. Yeah. It really does suggest that there is a serious link between these two things. And certainly if it was... Major Briggs, the implication would be that the nature of 
the murders of both him and Ruth Davenport might actually be connected to Evil Cooper as well. And one thing about Briggs going into hiding in order to make this dossier and potentially keep it as a document that records everything that will help people figure things out is the idea that this dossier is even referred to as the secret history of Twin Peaks um, by Mark Frost. And I do wonder if the secret really refers to it being a hidden history. And I think that maybe it could relate to the fact that the secret history of Twin Peaks is actually the reality of events had the doubles and clones never been placed in the real world. Mm, so we don't see any reference to Annie, for example. And Annie could be one of these characters who is a um, who is a clone. But I wonder if there's some importance of the series of events being told to reveal that there has been an external influence on the reality that we're seeing. Mm. And this is a cryptic way that Major Briggs is actually getting it out there. And maybe that's why it's a secret history. It's a, you know, it's a hidden reality which he's revealing to us in this dossier. Yes, we were wondering where this dossier might be, given that it's apparently in a, a large metal box. And when we were re-watching parts one and two, you get all those scenes very early on around Ruth's apartment complex with her neighbour and her chihuahua and the police trying to get into the room. So you've got Barney, the building manager, who is in hospital, but not the regular hospital, whatever that's supposed to mean. I don't know what kind of a hospital it is. And then, and if he's not around, he leaves his keys with his brother, Chip, but no one knows how to get in touch with Chip. So then she says, well, maybe... Hank, the maintenance guy, might know where Chip is, and he's apparently hanging around. So the police go outside, and they find Hank. He's going down the back of the building, and he's carrying two bags. He's carrying a kind of leather satchel and a large refuse sack, and he looks completely spooked when the police turn up, um, very twitchy. And they say to him, where can we find Barney's brother? And he says, well, who told you I was going to see Chip? Who told you? He thinks that someone's called the police on him, clearly. He's completely freaking out, and then he seems very relieved, but still very twitchy when the police are just looking for a way to get into his apartment. And then later on, you see him on the phone next to his car saying, Oh, you said you didn't want any part of this. I found it. It's mine. Me and Chip are going to do this, and you said that you didn't want to be a part of it. So there's something that they have found, uh, something that is causing them to be twitchy around the police, and they don't want anyone to know what they found. So is it possible that having the keys to his apartment, they actually went in and investigated the weird smell earlier, found she was dead, also found some stuff in the apartment, which was, I don't know, valuable, mysterious, whatever, and decided to take it and not tell anyone they'd found the body. And that that means that the three of them together have in their possession something that was found in the crime scene that the police haven't got yet. So this leaves us with a question. What is it that Hank has in his large, what looks like a medical bag and the black sack as well? And we wonder if actually what's in there is the lockbox. Mm. And he's carrying it around and actually it's in plain sight for the viewer. <laughs> They're pretending that it could be a separate mystery, but maybe this is the moment where the lockbox is 
part of that crime scene. And maybe it's going to be revealed later on. Maybe they're going to go back and they're going to interview Hank and find out some more when they investigate the site where the murder took place, that there is something missing. And maybe that's when the lockbox will be identified. Maybe Hank will give it up. He's clearly very twitchy and he's worried about police involvement anyway. That could then yield the lockbox to the police who then pass it on to the FBI. It then goes to Cole and that could be what triggers Preston's proper involvement in going through the dossier. And remember, the mission that Cole has given Preston is to identify the person who wrote the dossier. Now, that would mean that that same mission is also to identify the body in the room, which we think is probably Major Garland Briggs. So the question is, how is Bad Coop involved in all of this? Well, we know that Hastings Secretary has information that Bad Coop wants. So the other thing that would happen is, if the events we've seen so far are all taking place pre-dossier, then one wonders if actually when the dossier is found, there'll actually be a jump cut to the current 2017 timeline, which might actually be the moment when we have regular Cooper back in the real world with his full critical faculties Mm -hmm. working again. And it could be that that's where the investigation in Twin Peaks is all coming together. Mm. And I do wonder if the only bits we're seeing so far, which are truly in current 2017, are those scenes at the roadhouse we're seeing at the end of every episode. Because those are almost without any obvious uh, time constraint. There's no reason why those would be in the past in any way, shape or form. But one wonders if, just like in the original series, when everyone gathers in the roadhouse, maybe that's what's going to happen over the course of all these episode endings. Everyone's going to move towards the roadhouse. And it'd be really cool if there's even a scene at some point where, just like... Uh, Major Briggs bringing the waiter to the roadhouse when Coop is about to reveal who killed Laura. There could be a wonderful scene where everyone is gathering in the roadhouse in 2017 and maybe somebody like Hawk is the one who's going to bring Cooper back to the roadhouse and that'll be the moment which kind of brings everyone together in the present day to work out what's going on. Wow, so thank you for sticking with us through this marathon takedown of parts three and four and our slightly bonkers theory about the secret history of Twin Peaks. Uh, if you've got any comments about any of the theories or any, any feedback you want to give us, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA or on our website, timeforcakesnow.com. And if you like the episodes, please feel free to review us, get in touch with us with some feedback. And remember that to get all the Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee episodes, uh, if you just subscribe to the main Time for Cakes and Ale podcast feed, you'll get all the Cherry Pie and Coffee episodes along with all of our other Cakes and Ale non-Twin Peaksy episodes as well. We've been doing our fun poll from Cole on Twitter the last few weeks. Our third one, at the time of recording, is still running, but by the time we actually release this episode, it will probably have finished. But... At the time of recording, the answer that is in the lead as to what kind of Twin Peaks merchandise people would like to see is the Gordon Cole GPS sat-nav. And second place is currently going to the Just Dance Little Man From Another Place edition. 
and not many people are really going for the uh, Hank Jennings Domino set. No. So you know, it's actually almost tying, I think, with Pokemon Go. <laughs> but I think I think that'll that'll get to a leader um, by the end. Yeah. So we're going to be putting up a new one soon. This is getting a bit Twin Peaksy because we're talking to you from the future from when we're recording. Um, but we'll be putting up another poll again. Uh, we're thinking about what kind of topic that we'll do next time for our poll from Cole. So look out for that on our Twitter feed. So, yes, once again, thank you for sticking with us through part three and four of Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. We'd like to thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Got a theory, it could be Barney's. Barney's! Barney's, it must be!